there's something wrong with routine-based judging if it rewards something that we don't like or care about. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So today we have a myriad of topics about worlds and our experience. But first, I think we want an update from Duke. Yeah, so this this is my attempt to not embody social media on the podcast. So our last podcast was an emergency podcast filled with positivity about the incredible results we were having at Duke. So now I want to give the flip side a little bit, the darker days of trying to recruit new freestylers, which is we have been out every single day since our bonanza day, and we just haven't had the same results, both in terms of not having as many people come up to play, but also not having a lot of people from the bonanza day return with a couple exceptions. And yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, it's highs and lows. There are days where it feels so good, like the day we podcasted about. And then there are days that are so hard. So for instance, we had the club fair day for the freshmen. So imagine the entire Duke quad stacked with people. We were in the smallest patch of grass I've ever played on here because there was <laughs> there had to be thousands of people there. And we played for three hours in the burning hot sun. We were in <laughs> demo mode the entire time, which is really hard to sustain. And just not a lot of action. Just almost nobody came up. We had one really promising person. But other than that, it just felt like, like Will kept saying, how can so many people walk by and just not say anything? <laughs> and I kept telling him, this is the normal way it goes. It's this. I played in New York for 10 years. 10,000 people walk by every day and almost nobody stops. So ups and downs. And part of me thinks that we have to adjust a little bit to our own success because I think whew, there's a few factors. One, I think the Bonanza Day has a cost, which is that you don't get enough time with each person individually. So we might not have built strong enough bonds with some of them to come back. So a lot of the people who are now permanent freestylers are people who, when they came up to us, the whole day was about them. So we had a full hour or more to really bond with them and get them excited about the group and the community and all that. Whereas teaching 20 people to delay in 10 minutes on one day might not be enough. So we're probably going to have to keep learning and adjusting to figure out what the right sweet spot is. Because there'd be something really painful and ironic to say, okay, we taught 100 people how to delay this year and none of them <laughs> became permanent freestylers. Like Obviously, it's better for us to teach three people how to delay and have one person become a permanent freestyler versus 100 people who can delay, but none of them keep up with it. So we'll see. I mean, but just wanted to be transparent that it's not all milk and honey out here. There's definitely some <laughs> some darker days. So we'll see. But today, one of the people from the Bonanza Day who's come out again, I think is coming out. And I think I think right now we have one or two people that I'm pegging as potential long-term freestylers. So hopefully that works out. I mean, awesome. still one or two long-term freestylers is, <laughs> that's a significant win for one bonanza day. Of course, that's all we need. I mean, I say repeatedly to Will and Ray and everyone else, as long as we get one person a year, we are surviving. And I mean, honestly, we're growing if we get one or two people <laughs> a year. But every time we get a new person, I think that 
we re-upped. It's just we got another, we bought us some more time to keep growing the sport. And we have a few things that are starting to happen that also help a lot. Will is now ready to take over. I think, and this transitions a little bit to the next topic, which is my Will update. But this year coming back was the first time I thought, okay, Will is in charge now. And he's calling the jams. He told me, he's like, you're taking a day off tomorrow. It's like, don't even come out. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're tired. You need to take a break. And he's just sort of taking over. And we're working towards getting a club status this year. Someone, we got a few faculty sponsors. And then also, I, I'm kind of getting it together. And I'm going to try to reach out to Duke. I have no idea if this will be successful. And just say, like, look, there's Duke students who want to learn how to do this. If there's a way we can turn it into a class, that would be incredible. And hopefully we can, in the next couple of years, transition to something a little more formal. But we'll see. I like the idea of a class, too, because it becomes clear that the job during class time is to learn and not necessarily just a jam, which I think can be helpful. Because yeah. I'm still struggling with that balance. So... For instance, one of the people who's really excited right now that's a freshman, he is he has, you know, his five, six second delay, and he's already trying really hard to just move on to everything else. And if it was a class, I think it'd be easier for me to say, no, all we're gonna do is the delay right now. I promise we'll get to the other stuff later. But in the context of a jam, <laughs> I'm sort of like, if you're having fun, we'll do whatever you want to do. But it's a balance because even though my general rule is we do whatever you want to do, because if you're having fun, that means you're gonna keep freestyling. But people don't always know what's in their own best interest. And maybe if his progress stalls out because I'm not pushing him to do the, you know, quote, right things, he'll lose interest later. So it's kind of tricky. But <laughs> I always talk about how expectation is really important. So if you know you're going to a class to learn, it's easier for me to step in and say, I promise we'll have lots of time to jam and we'll have lots of time to jam in our free time. But at class time, here are the things we're going to work on. And this will help you progress as a freestyler faster. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast, but uh, I was listening to how Will was talking to the like freshman coming in. I was like, mm -hmm. wow, he talks like James. And he's like <laughs> so invested. <laughs> I was like, could definitely see the future going on right there. Yeah, I think one thing I don't know if we ever touched on in the podcast is we've been lucky as a community that we've always had someone's stepping up at the right time. So for instance, I think a lot about the competitive director position of the FPA. When I first started, mm -hmm. Claudio Chinia was doing a lot of that work and it's a ton of work and it's a thankless job and people are really mean to you. And I think as soon as he reached a point in his life where he couldn't do that anymore, Jakob Kostel stepped up and did a lot of work. So we <laughs> like right now, I feel like Andre Zaharias is doing a lot of stuff. So there's always people that are filling in the shoes of the people before and this last couple of weeks, especially, I saw Will filling my shoes and I'm getting excited about the day where it doesn't feel so much like it's on my shoulders to get it to get it done and keep it happening. So that's a really, really good feeling. Mm -hmm. OK, so then a little similar topic, but I want to give a little bit of a Will update because and this all the topics today are kind of of the same piece, but. I got a little nervous about even before we agreed to play with Will, we might even talk about this podcast of like, is Will ready to get to compete with me and you? We knew we'd be competitive <laughs> to win. And 
there is a history of freestylers where winning early can kind of dampen their enthusiasm. And so I kind of think there's a couple of different ways you can go if you have a lot of success early. One way is the not so great way where you think this is easy or I already have everything that I need to have and it slows your growth. And then another way is you get fired up and you get more confidence and you have more belief in yourself and it accelerates your growth. And early returns are Will's <laughs> growth is accelerating. So obviously his growth accelerated a ton in preparation for Worlds. So we figured out that he hit four doubles, all different, and the open pairs finals. And I know people can be critical that we focus so much on doubles, but it's just an easy marker for where you are and what you can do. And there can only be so many players in history that have hit four doubles <laughs> and the pair in the world championship finals. Like if you actually just go through the list of great players, I'm not, I don't think that happens very much at all. I think no. probably me and him are the only people that hit four different doubles at worlds this year. Certainly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's been playing for two years. That's incredible. But when we came back, he's playing even better. His confidence level is so high. He's doing lots of moves I've never seen him do before. And when we had our kind of demo jam on Fair Day, I was like, okay, wow. He knows exactly what to do here. He's catching everything. And it was the first time I had that little feeling. This sounds so whatever it sounds like. I don't care. It's the first time I was like, oh, this is what it'd be like to play with myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> which is like kind of my dream. <laughs> Just like, here's someone who has very skilled and has, not surprisingly, because he's played with me for so long, has a similar philosophy to me. And one thing that's always a little tough, especially the last few years when I've been playing with totally new players, is there's that moment where there's a big group walking by. I can tell they're interested. And I go into, okay, I need to do some awesome stuff to see if we can get them to mm -hmm. stop and ask about it. And, you know, let's say they're 200 feet away and someone throws it to me I'm like, okay, I'm a little early. I hit my combo. Now they're hundred feet away and I have to throw it to somebody else. And I throw it to somebody else and they try their dumbest new move that they can't do. That looks <laughs> terrible. And they drop it. I'm like, why did you make that decision? We totally lost the audience. It's over. But Will and I played for three hours and you know, I don't know if we ever had an audience, but we weren't losing it because Will just knew exactly what to do at the right right time and right place. So <laughs> I'm super optimistic that this win is going to fuel more success for him. And I hope other people take it as a lesson that growth mindset always, even if you're successful, you have to have a growth mindset and figure out how you can get to the next level, whatever happened, win, lose, tie, find a way to let it fuel you. Mm -hmm. Did you notice Will's change about next year's worlds in Poland? Like before we went to Colombia, he's like, I don't think I can go. And then now he's like, I'm going to get Will or I'm going to get Ray to go with me. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I think it definitely fired him up. And this is a little bit of foreshadowing what we're going to talk about later. I was pretty bummed that Will saw this Worlds because it was a really small turnout. And that's the only thing I'm complaining about, just the small turnout. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But in some ways, it's good that he was so fired up just from what he saw there. 
Because I think if he goes to Europe, he's going to be really blown away when there are, you know, 70 people jamming on Tempelhof or whatever. So that's going to be pretty cool. But he's really fired up. I think it's also going to fire up the rest of the Duke students because I think so far we have a really good community of shared success where people were really excited for Will and I think that'll inspire them too. So that's pretty cool. Okay. So now transitioning a little more into just worlds in general. So I'll ask you first, what are your just general emotions, feelings coming back from worlds and another win? I felt, I don't know. It was okay. It was kind of just like recovery mode because I had hurt my shoulder and I was just like trying to, survive i think that was what i was thinking i think you and me talked a lot about how even though it was like will's first win he's like with the two grumpiest freestylers yeah <laughs> it's like like what i wanted to say after at the end of the tournament when we got interviewed was like it's the end of an era like you're retiring yeah but it's the beginning of will's era it's like yeah will you bring up a few things that I think are worth talking about. First, I should say, if you're somehow living under a freestyle rock, which is a lot of people, but if you're listening to this podcast, I'd be surprised if you didn't know. So the big picture is women's pairs, Katie Gimma and Angela won. That's the first Colombian woman, Angela. Katie's sort of like a dual, dual, I don't want to say citizen. I don't know what she identifies, but like there was both of their first wins. So that was super exciting. Me and Daniel won pairs. That was obviously exciting after we didn't play pairs together at Worlds for 12 years. Our last Worlds pairs competition was in 2011. Um, Mixed, Ilka and I won, which we can talk about that because Ilka had this documentary crew following her at Worlds. So hopefully that's a good storyline for them. And then me, you and Will won co-op in a pretty tough battle with Anka, Daniel, and Tommy. That's kind of complicated because you broke your shoulder, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But yeah, obviously for me, I got the triple crown. I really wanted that in 2019, and felt like I should have got that in 2019, and that was my dropless run. I think that was my cleanest and best competition I've ever had this year. It felt like it didn't play that well. I was kind of inconsistent, and kind of just exhausted and I wanted to retire last year. So I think I wasn't that excited just about <laughs> competing in general. And I'm a little bummed that I feel like that kind of showed in how I played. And then we'll, one of our topics today is kind of routine based competition in general. I think I'm just so over it and I hate the way it makes me play. And so I have a lot of mixed emotions about just competing in general, which is why I retired and <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. So it's like cool to win. But even though I just described a lot of negative emotions, I would say I'm neutral. Like you asked me how I felt when we were going home. And I was like, I feel nothing. Like I feel neither good. I feel neither bad. And in some ways that's nice. Like it would be kind of sad if it was over and I'm really depressed because I'm not going to compete anymore. Obviously I could just come out of retirement or something, but I basically felt nothing. And sometimes nothing's not the best emotion. Um, Wait, let's start. I want to talk about your biggest disappointment of the tournament. So on the last day, I hurt my shoulder and I like can't put clothes on and off because I can't move my shoulder. 
And like at least 10 times after you're like, we're going to go home and we're going to cut your shirt off. But when we get home, they're like, I can take my shirt off. And you're like, I didn't get to cut your shirt off like in the movies. I was very bummed about that. I had the scissors ready to go. I was very excited. But, you know, that is part of it. Right. And I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I'm sorry. This is less coherent. But I think if there was going to be some moment of triumph, getting the triple crown or whatever, or winning with Will or winning with you again, or knowing it was my last round. I'm not sure that would have happened anyways, just because how many times you have to win before it stops giving you that big dopamine hit. But with 45 seconds left of the round, I watched one of my best friends hit the ground and just, I like, it was so obvious that you were really hurt. And so any like extreme joy we could have felt was certainly dampened by the fact that you broke your shoulder. And at that time, we didn't know exactly the extent of the damage. Like it could have been something that's not such a big deal, which is sort of how it turned out. You broke your collarbone, but you don't have to get like a surgery. You don't have to have a cast. But at the time, who knows? It could have been like some rotator cuff that took forever to heal. (laughs) Who knows? And I know like you were really down not knowing, you know, think about for both of us. Both of us do. I went to the doctor this week and they were like, how much you exercise every week? I was like, "Mm, two to three hours a day, every day. (laughs) <laughs> so and like you're probably like six hours a day every day so the idea that that part of your life could be over for a while is just really sad so that that kind of dampened things but yes i was the one kind of joke that was getting me laughing on finals day was that we were going to get to cut your shirt off but we didn't get to do it you were fine <laughs> yeah um uh, retirement. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to talk about. This is me just trying to be honest about it for better or worse. But this is like the part of the podcast that's a little bit therapy. And I also think it's the part of the podcast that's trying to not be social media, which is kind of my theme for today. Like if I were on or active on social media, I would have my five posts about winning and winning with Daniel <laughs> and hitting the triple crown. But that's not really what it's like. It's more like I was exhausted. We played so much Frisbee for a month. I was really bummed about the turnout. I was super over competing. That's why I retired. I am really over routine based competition. I don't love how I play in competition, which I think is the result of 10 years of competing under the routine based system, which I'll come back to. And all of that wears on you. And you said this, but I want to pick it up because I do think it's like the worst part about it is we told Will, like, I'm sorry you won with the two grumpiest people. Like there's no two people that were less excited about winning than me and you were. And I feel bad. I still feel bad. I'm telling Will, I feel bad that we probably didn't give him I don't know what the right word is like the right support for winning. Like this is a huge accomplishment. You made history. He's the first player to win after two years. He did it. I was about to say pairs. He did it in co-op. So Dan and I did it in three years in co-op. Obviously like me and him were both new and Paul was old and like me and you are experienced and he's only one person that's new, but it in two years. And it's not like we were hiding him. I mean, he (laughs) hit a lot of crazy stuff. So And I think like a big message I got after the tournament is like, Will's a top player now. And I think that's right. I can't imagine there's more than 
30 people better than him, 40 people better than him. I think about it. And I think easily by the end of the year, he could be like a top 20, top 15 player anyways. <laughs> but that's kind of a bummer. Like, I don't feel good about that. I wish I could manufacture emotions and have been really excited about it. And again, also I think there's a little bit of a prisoner of a moment thing, which I'll come back to, which is when you got hurt, that just sort of sucked all the energy out of the room. So it was really hard to be excited. And then everything just kind of like that aspect of it influenced everything that went forward. So it's not like, okay, like we did win and Ryan isn't that hurt. Now I feel great again. It's sort of like that initial sin of you getting hurt (laughs) kind of sapped all of our energy from it. So I feel bad, but also the same time, this is common. Like how every year someone wins in a way that like something they don't love about it. Like I, I think the most common example, which happened to me plenty of times is you don't play well and you win, but no one else played well either. So lots of wins come with a little bit of anxiety and anxiousness about them. I'm just sad that this is Will's first and he had to deal with me and you being just like, eh, whatever. Like it is what it is. (laughs) It happens every year. Yeah. And one other little side tangent about that, that I'm also trying to figure out what to do is I feel bad when we're trying to recruit people that a lot of times, especially this week where I'm so frisbeed out that I don't have the same enthusiasm I would like to have when we're trying to basically market our sport because I'm just tired. I'm just so tired. And (laughs) there are times I think like (laughs) it would be better if I just left and let somebody else come in here who's super (laughs) fired up because it'll look more enticing to people from the outside. Um, but you know, we're doing, we're doing our best and it's time to embrace that. You just go out there and dress like a grumpy old man and be like, (laughs) save this grumpy old man. Well, there's something interesting here too, which is, I think all the best players get kind of grumpy. I'm sure, I'm sure there are exceptions, (laughs) but we just go down the list of players that people consider to be the greats. They're all a little bit grumpy by the end. And I think it's because it's hard to stay enthusiastic about something that you put in 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 hours into. And I also think there's this thing that you're holding yourself to a higher and higher standard and you're holding other people to a higher and higher standard. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more and more difficult to achieve or exceed that standard. And so it's hard to maintain your enthusiasm. So when you think about the beginning, you're just so excited to get that delay that every time someone throws it to you and you delay it, you're in ecstasy. You're just like, I'm hitting the thing. It's working. This is so cool. (laughs) But imagine where I'm at. I'm just like, if I'm not hitting grown man cry, it's just like, I feel nothing. Like my pulse is 40 (laughs) beats per minute. So you've done all the drugs in the world and now there's no way to get a high. There's I'm like, I'm like, I don't even feel anything on fentanyl. Like there's like nothing. There's no other drug more powerful left. And Look, I think there's ways around that. Like weirdly, as I'm saying all this, like last night I got weirdly freestyle inspired and I went and practiced and was like trying new moves. And today I'm thinking about doing a study tape, which like I rarely feel motivated to do anymore. So like there's still a lot of love for freestyle in there. But I mean, maybe another way to think about it is I'm really tired of performative freestyle, which is not only what I was doing at Worlds, but it's also what I've been doing all week at Duke, which is Mm -hmm. I'm not competing. I'm not playing in an experimental way. I'm not playing to learn. I'm playing to show a product that will either succeed in a freestyle tournament or succeed in attracting new people to play. 
again, not even sure I'm taking the right approach and how I play for either of those things, but like, I'm trying to do that. And that's very different than what I would personally want to do while freestyling. So kind of a negative podcast today. Sorry about that. But hopefully knowing people are human is, is a good thing. So let's transition that then to the great emergency of our times. Worlds was a catastrophic turnout. It's the <laughs> lowest number of players competing I've ever seen. And it's not even close. And it was really dark. I don't even know where to start. I mean, when I saw how few people and how few teams there were, like I wanted to just start crying. And it was, I think I was especially sensitive to it because Will was there. And this is his first major, his first international tournament, his first major tournament. And I'm thinking like, I don't want you to think this is what freestyle is like. Like, obviously we all know freestyle is not major league baseball, but it's definitely way bigger than what we saw at worlds this year. What did you think or feel about that? What hit me was the 10 pairs teams we had. It ended up being like 12, (laughs) but (laughs) it's not a lot better. Yeah, there's always the last minute teams, but I know it's just like such a stark number from what we're used to. I mean, just think this was before my time, but I think in 2009, there was like 120 registered players and they were having a different kind of crisis where they were like, how are we going to get all these teams in? Like, we don't have enough Mm -hmm. time in four days to do the tournament. Similarly, we talked with Will about how there was a Frisbeer that we were at where like the semifinals was like, or whatever, whatever round it was, it was like 10 teams in every pool cut to two. Like (laughs) it was the only way to get the tournament done in time because there were so many players there. And that's not what we had at Medellin. Now, obviously there's just the Medellin factor in general. It's in another continent. It's not the US, it's not Europe. And so it doesn't have a big built-in base of players. It does have a lot of players though. I mean, I don't know what the right number is, but there was, I have to guess there's 30 to 50 freestylers in Medellin. I don't know. But like I played with lots of people I'd never seen before, never heard of before, who didn't compete, who were there and were skilled freestylers. So that was super cool. But very few Europeans came and very few Americans came. And that's kind of our freestyle base. I mean, honestly, these days, it's probably just Europeans. Like that's really where competitive Mm -hmm. freestylers are coming from. And we just didn't have just did not have the numbers. And it was weird to just think that, okay, probably Juntas de Mejor in Medellin was a bigger tournament in some ways than Worlds. Frisbeer now eclipsed Worlds. Like Frisbeer was way bigger and way more competitive than Worlds. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, it was still, this is easy for me to say, but like it was still felt like Worlds. Like there's always a difference because everyone's prepared People have routines, like the stakes are still feel very high, even if there aren't that many teams there. But just stepping back big picture, it felt really concerning. I mean, I was I wasn't even joking, but like from the first day, I was saying like we should cancel worlds and spend the whole time spreading the jam. Like, what's the point of this? This is this feels really meaningless if we're not growing. So I don't know. Any any other thoughts on that? <laughs> it made me thankful that we have two years planned in advance for Worlds. So I'm like, this year was light, but Poland has a chance to be big again. So I was like, this isn't the end. We're, we have another chance next year. 
Yeah, I, I do expect a big turnout for Poland because they're they're already a popular destination with Sandslash. Sandslash is already or supposed to be really close in time to Worlds. Poland shouldn't be that hard to get to. I think people will gear up for that, especially people who missed out on this year's world. So hopefully they have the money and energy enthusiasm to go to Polish worlds, but it still, it still hit me hard that it was such low numbers. I do think like, we're going to talk about the tournament organization, which I actually think was relatively good as always. There were some complaints, but that's true of every tournament. There's just no way around that. It's what we talk about. Like no matter what we do, we're going to get criticized. Same thing for worlds. Mm -hmm. But I do think if you host worlds or any tournament, you have to treat yourself like a business that needs to market. When we did the AFO in Austin, I called every single freestyle in the United States and talked with each person and said, can I get you to this tournament? And we had a crazy turnout. The first tournament especially wasn't actually an AFO. It was just a, I don't remember what we called it, American Freestyle, who knows. But we planned that tournament with like three or four weeks lead time. And we had a massive turnout. And I think it's just, what any business school student will tell you, just the work of one-on-one person-to-person contact. And <laughs> I certainly felt like I didn't have a lot of information about Worlds this whole year. I was always texting Katie, who isn't even officially an organizer, I think. And I always felt bad about it. I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I know this isn't your job, but like, what's the story? Like, what's going on? But don't think that just because you have a Worlds or a big tournament that people are going to come. If you don't reach out to people individually and say, this is happening, here's where it's happening, here are the details, you're going to get a smaller turnout. And just think about how easy it is. I mean, if you want to double, I really think it'll, it'll double the amount of people that go. If you just reach out to people, you'll double your numbers. So I hope people will consider that in the future. Yeah, I agree. I also think we're at a like inflection point. So I think Larry Imperiale, a million years ago, he was talking about this traffic book. He gave me a copy. I still have it on my bookshelf. I even started reading it, but never finished it. But apparently traffic patterns are sinusoidal waves. So those are like wavy lines for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about. And so like there's always a high point and then it goes to a low point and then it goes to a high point and then it goes to a low point. I definitely think we're at a low point and hopefully that means we're on our way to a high point. And it kind of makes sense that we're at a low point because we are, as you mentioned before, at a generational shift. So I think all the American players that were still kind of at their peak, but at the end of their careers, we're still playing really competitively at lots of different tournaments when you and I started playing. Now, almost all those people are gone. The only representatives of those generations, of that generation at Worlds this year was Paul and Larry. Now you could maybe add like a Mike or a Char in there too, but I almost think they're a generation even after that. So we're losing out on a lot of those people but we don't have a lot of the really young generation competing yet, or at least traveling to the tournaments. So like a lot of the younger Europeans that are still in their twenties don't have the financial wherewithal to travel all the way to Medellin, Colombia and stay there for a week for worlds. So like hopefully as they get older and more financially stable, they'll start making it. And eventually hopefully some more of the Duke students start making it. But we're definitely at a low point for lots of different reasons, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still treat it as an emergency. I do think we need to be <laughs> full on. What do we need to do to make worlds a better experience? Like I think I'm going to be recruiting people to worlds next year and I'm not, I'm not even sure I'm going, I don't think I can, <laughs> but like I will try to make sure that people go to Poland 
because I think it's it's that important. Yep. Okay, any other thoughts on the low turnout? No, I think that's it. I'll give maybe one more, which is that low turnout makes everything a lose-lose situation. Because if you win, it's sort of like, ah, whatever, you beat a handful of teams. And if you lose, it's like, oh my gosh, how c- I, could, I couldn't even win this one. So <laughs> it's kind of my problem with the GME Awards back in the day, which we should do a podcast on at some point, where it's like, if everyone gets a GME except for like three people, it just becomes a lose-lose. Like, it's just, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything if you get it, but it hurts if you don't. And uh, it's got to be hard again. Like, we kept trying to explain to all, this used to be really hard. I mean, even in 2018, when me and you were probably considered strong favorites and we did win, I remember us looking at the semis pools being like, okay, I we should make it to the finals, but we like, <laughs> I, we do need to play well to make the finals. Like, <laughs> the bubble spot is very competitive and it only takes a handful of drops and we don't make the finals as reigning world champions like that was not that long ago that's 2018 that's five years ago versus this year we could have not even had a semis like we could have just (laughs) practically gone straight to the finals and it would have been fine you know yep tough okay next and we're working our way to some more like world specific content but routine based system when you would first talk about how against it you were i didn't really get it And I think, honestly, I was just blinded by this is what I'm used to. This is how it's been my entire career. And I don't even want to say I'm good at it, but like I win a lot at the routine-based system. So I think like all the factors lined up for me to be pro routine-based system. But now I am like passionately and emotionally opposed to routine-based judging systems. And I think it's because it's just so not freestyle in my mind. (laughs) so there's a lot of reasons one we do not do pre-choreographed moves when we jam that's weird to me two i think well actually let me even pause on this i think there's been this weird evolution i think when routine based system started it actually was more like freestyle because you just slap on the talking heads and you start shredding (laughs) and that was how freestyle was in the 1980s the problem with that is it wasn't a very compelling product I think. And it eventually, well, let me put this way. Eventually it became obvious that there was ways to be really successful under the judging system that made it further and further away from freestyle. So if you start in 1980 and it's five minute routine and everyone just puts on the talking heads and maybe has like four or five planned co-ops and then is basically jamming. If you transported me and you back to 1980 we would have destroyed that judging system. We would have been like, oh, like we're going to play to music that has music cues. We're going to choreograph every single move. We're going to hit every single music cue. And it's sort of like a technological determinism argument. Like you've built the parameters for competition that led the way people play further and further away from freestyle. So it no longer makes sense to do anything remotely freestyle-like in competition and it's like that's one problem i think it's not like freestyle proper two and some of this i think the new judging system fixes but a lot of people like me are so broken from the old system that it's too late for us which is it teaches a plain psychology that is 
really unoptimized for how at least I want to play. So like I watch my routines from this year. I'm at the height of my freestyle abilities. I'm as good as I've ever been in my life. And I watch myself compete. And I think like, I don't like that at all. Like my form is way worse. I honestly like drop it more than usual. I do moves that I never do in normal jamming life. It's just like, that is a whole different player that's called, you know, routine me. And like Mm -hmm. routine me is a different person than regular me. And like what causes that? One, under the old system, drops were so devastating that a certain kind of safety was ingrained in that kind of play. But there's an irony to safety, which is a lot of times it's not safer because routine me is doing things that I don't normally do, which means I drop them a lot because I'm not (laughs) used to them. So it's like it's worse in every way. Like it's safer and less exciting. It's not how I want to play. And I still make mistakes that I wouldn't normally make. So I really don't like that. Two, I'm, I'm, I was flirting with this theory last night. I wonder what you think about it. But I think the importance and obsession with music and hitting obvious music cues and building routines with kind of random assumptions of what the conditions would be like means that when I'm trying to execute my pre-choreographed routine, I'm either rushing a lot or killing a lot of time. And it's almost impossible to find a happy medium. And this, I think, for instance, is what makes my form a lot worse when I compete than it is when I play, which is that I know I have to hit this music cue. And so I'm not reaching that music cue in the natural flow of the moves. I'm Mm -hmm. like cramming in or extending out whatever I'm supposed to do. So this is especially problematic when we don't know what the conditions are going to be like. So like all of my routines this year were built for outside. And then it turned out the competition was inside. Now, ironically, and just call this a mistake, all my routines were way too rushed. (laughs) Like like even (laughs) when we moved inside, I felt like I was running around so fast. And it's because we're trying to hit these music cues. And this is something I'm... I think went like too far in the new system. The value of more phrases is so high that I'm like literally just cramming content in. It's just like totally relentless and totally unnatural. And I don't like how it looks. I just, it's not authentic or something. I don't know what the right word is, but big picture. All I'm trying to say is like, maybe I'll put it differently. Like now that I'm retired, I'm kind of like reflecting on like, okay, what did I accomplish in freestyle? And whatever the answer to that question is, I don't want it to be competition. (laughs) Like, I don't want people to pull up my routines and watch them because they're going to be like, this is not good or interesting Mm -hmm. or exciting. And I just want to be like, no, like, please, I am good. I'm really good at this. But you would not know that from watching me compete. Now, obviously, I've won a lot because I was just not as bad as other people, (laughs) but I don't like it. And that's a really bummer emotion to feel, right? Yep. What would be the video you show people when you're like, There's I was two good back videos. I was like okay. really thinking about this last night. <laughs> I would show them first and foremost, my video playing with Will in the Spin Factory last Thanksgiving. Okay. That, <laughs> like, I'm sure if I like went through the archives, I could find better videos better freestyle whatever like that video 
is I feel like my peak freestyle, I think. Like, and it's just icing on top that it's a video with Will. Like, if anything, I'm kind of like, oh, I just wish Will, I wish it was Will from now in that video. Cause then we <laughs> like, he does shred in that video. Like, if you watch it, you see the pieces of what he's becoming in there, but it still looks like the movements of someone who isn't totally formed as a freestyler. But then the other video is probably the video of me and you at beach weekend or like honestly mm. any of the beach weekend videos from <laughs> last year i mean those are just those are so much better and you know just more blithering here but the thing that's really i'm caught up in right now is like why does the aesthetic of my freestyle so much worse when i compete and again i kind of explained my theory i think it's because i'm trying to play a different way for the judging system and i'm like rushed or delaying to hit music cues like if I think about like what is the difference when I watch like those videos, I see why I'm good, which is like this fluidity of play that not a lot of other people have. It's just like the disc is moving at exact. It's hard to describe like exactly the right speed. It's moving at the right time. There's nothing jarring. There's nothing rapid. It just truly flows in every sense of the word, which I don't see as much when I'm competing. And part of this comes to my bigger thing is I'm always trying to figure out like, why is it that this, I'm going to put it in the worst possible terms, but I just like, I'm just trying to be authentic here. Like, like, why am I better than everybody else? Like why? <laughs> At least now I'm not making some kind of weird. I'm just saying like right now, like obviously I'm winning everything. Why am I better than everyone else? It's not about moves, which I like, I'm always trying to say it's like not even totally about like form and like lots of us. So I do think it is about this like ability to move fluidly with the disc and a big part of that ability is improvisation and like total mastery and that's the thing that i think is the like those are the things that can't be mimicked like you can learn lots of moves you can like learn even specific combos that like present a picture of mastery but to be able to like the true greats like matt like i'm all, matt's always my guiding light here right like matt just moved fluidly with flow and spontaneity and improv. Like he had all those pieces and like no one can match that. Like, and some of what I've been thinking was like, this is what Will will need 10 years to do. Like he doesn't, or however, I don't know, probably not 10 years, but like he didn't need 10 years to learn all the moves. Like yesterday or whenever we were playing, <laughs> he was doing moves. I was like, I don't think I started doing that move until like last year. Like, I don't know how you're already doing that. Like that didn't take you very long, but he's still, it takes just a long time to reach that fluidity improvisation whatever and i'm saying all of this to say like the routine based system doesn't care about any of that like it it just i was as competitive as a freestyler 10 years ago as i am now like my win rate hasn't changed very much in 10 years but i'm a far better player now than i was 10 years ago and to me that says something is kind of wrong with our competition system and i don't think this is a judging system problem because as I've said repeatedly, like it doesn't matter what the judging system is that much. It's all about the raw scores. And all my tournaments have been under every judging system you can imagine. Like it's very few tournaments that are actually judged on a FPA judging system. Like something about like routines, maybe. This is a theory, a hypothesis. I know I'm just like stream of conscious here. Like something about routines isn't rewarding you for the things that are hardest to achieve in freestyle. Does any of this make sense? 
Yeah, it makes sense to me. Isn't there like a quote about like nature's like elegant and beautiful if you just like look at it? It's like that's the part we're missing. Like you have like this really optima or like this really diverse toolbox and like every situation is different. And you're like, what would nature do here? And you're like, I own that move, so I'm going to do it. But most people are just like, I have my five basic tools and they use those over and over again. But even there's even like a beauty and mastery and spontaneity in using five moves over and over again. So it's not even necessarily about that, but I guess like uh, to put it in both a negative and positive spins, like, you know, again, not social media. I'm not trying to say this whole, the whole point of this exercise is not to be like, let's talk about like why I'm good and why other people aren't. That's not it at all. But like I can watch myself jamming and be like, that is what I like. Like that is what I work to become. That was my goal. I am proud of that. And then I look at my competition and I don't feel that way at all. I'm like, I don't like that at all. I'm never going to show that to my children. I hope that that gets erased from YouTube one day <laughs> and people can just use their imagination and imagine these incredible, beautiful world championship feats. And what is the difference? I, this is me trying to like parse that difference. And in another day, maybe another podcast, we can talk about what is a different kind of competition philosophy or theory that could reward the things that I care about. But for now, I'm just kind of lamenting of like, I, you know, like I have a lot of new ultimate friends and everyone's like, send me the videos, send me the videos, send me the videos. And I'm just like <laughs> basically ghosting them. I'm like, I'm not going to see the videos. Like not only are they not that impressive, I don't want you to see, you know, my best rounds were in the semis this year. And I don't want you to see the, dark gym with nobody in it and like you know five people clapping that's not something that fills me with a lot of joy i mean like i will i guess i won't use this person's name i don't think they'd be bothered that i said this a recent world champion winner wrote me and was like i won and i feel like i'm in hiding and like i'm like welcome to my world that's how i felt (laughs) <laughs> like for as long <laughs> as I can remember in freestyle I'm just like it's not something what I do in competition is not something I'm proud of it's just this artificial exercise we do to I don't know but I mean I should say go compete like this isn't I, I think it's really important to compete I think having competitions is really important I think competing and preparing for competition made me a much better player so I, in no way do I want this to be something that discourages a new player from like pursuing competitive freestyle. But I do hope that this might be like comforting to some people. Cause I think a lot of people feel this way. Like I know mm-hmm. Ilka and I think we talked about this. Like she said, you know, I am never proud to show people my routines. Now she gave reasons why she felt that way that I disagree with. And I'm not sure she's totally right about like, it's dumb for me to say that. Like, it's 2023 you feel you feel i'm not like judging that i'm not trying to like invalidate that but like if i was an academic and i was assessing like why is it that top players feel bad about their competitive rounds i think it's because what we do in competition isn't what it isn't representative of who we are as players and isn't really representative freestyle it's not what we're trying to be good at Mm -hmm. and i think it's also why it's going to be like the longest rant podcast ever. It's also why the people you're scared of in competition aren't the best players usually. So it's like, I'm really worried about you because you're good at routine freestyle. 
I'm <laughs> not worried about you. And I think you're top three freestyle in the world right now. <laughs> so like that is another like aspect of this. That's really weird. But I think the point I'm liking now, and maybe because it's obviously like a little bit self-congratulatory, was like, I think what I said is true. I think I was as competitive as a freestyler almost 10 years ago. Like I was number one in the world 10 years ago and I'm number one again. And my win rate's probably like 10% better, but it's not a crazy amount better than it used to be. But again, I think I'm way better now than I was 10 years ago. So why is it that? And there was way more competition 10 years ago. So like if anything, you could say the only reason I won less back then is because I had to compete against Matt Gauthier every tournament. But like, why should I have been, I should not have been able to compete against Matt in 2013. I should have lost every single time we played because Matt was a thousand times better than me, but it didn't matter because routine based freestyle, like just isn't about that. (laughs) Yep. I don't know. And it could be, it could be. (laughs) And I guess I also want to say like, look, I get that. I'm not, I'm also not trying to argue that the problem with routine based freestyle is it doesn't reward the best players in the world i don't care about the fact that like the best players aren't always winning i care about like it's like the reverse causality it's just like what's there's something wrong with routine-based judging if it rewards something that we don't like or care about um this is all stream of consciousness i'm not explaining well but i want to make at least want to make clear if i'm not explaining it well like it's i'm not worried that the competitive system isn't rewarding the right people i'm worried that it just is a different thing that's not freestyle and mm-hmm. that's just too bad yeah but that's the things we can change yeah and we'll talk about it but we have this like interesting jam competition format we're thinking about introducing to the north carolina states but it, one thing that's kind of curious that it'll go back to my history point and there's a name for this it's like a principle theorem or whatever i don't know what it is which is basically like whenever you reward something it changes people's behavior so much that it's no longer rewarding the right thing. So for example, like you're a baseball statistician and you say like, Hey, when people get on base, they win lots of games. So let's do everything we can to get people on base. But then you start doing all these unnatural things that get your, get people on base number up, but that don't translate to winning. And so you've ruined the stat, like the stat no longer works to help you. I think that's what happened with routine-based freestyle. I think it's like, okay, let's just all get together, put on a song and jam, and whoever plays the best wins. But then everyone's like, oh, but like, what if I choreograph everything? And like, what if I pick a song that has music cues? And hey, like these kinds of things are rewarded. Like, let me maximize those. Like eventually the system gets so distorted, it's no longer what you intended it to be. So I think that could happen to us. Like we could make this awesome jam format and it'll be awesome for five years. And then people will come in And this is human nature. I'm not even saying this is a bad thing to do. People will come in and be like, oh, well, like the most valuable move in the jam competition is the crosswind roll set. I'm just going to crosswind roll set 50 (laughs) times and I'm going to win. And the whole thing falls apart and it no longer feels like jamming. That's the point. (laughs) For you, that's the point. Like that I care less about. And maybe that's also the point where I do agree with you of changing it regularly. So it's like, by the time people are kind of over optimizing it so that it's no longer natural, we move on to the next thing. Or like what I always talk about is like, how do we make it to where the things you're optimizing are the things we do actually care about? And I just don't know. 
Okay, but this actually transitions me to my next topic on my list that I wrote right before we started, which is judging psychology. So we've talked a ton about judging systems, this judging system, the old judging system, new judging systems, whatever. And look, there's some people who love what's happening now, some people who don't love it, whatever. But I think one thing we've talked about indirectly, but I want to put it directly right now, is the most important thing is judging psychology. And that's the piece people don't understand, which is like, we talk a lot about how like the new judging system rewards doubles. It doesn't, there's nothing in the new judging system that says anything about doubles. There's no multiplier for doubles. There's <laughs> nothing, there's, there isn't a line of code that says if double do this, there's no button you press that rewards doubles. The reason we say that, and the reason we do that is judging psychology judges. When they see doubles, they give high scores. That's why we do that. So like yesterday, Will did eight foot taps in a row. You could put a gun to my head and give me like an hour and maybe I could do that one time. But if I did eight foot taps in a routine, I would get like a six. But if I do a double, which I can do 99 times out of 100, I'm going to get an eight. So like what am I going to do? I'm going to do an eight. <laughs> so one piece that people are missing when they are trying to assess the judging system, trying to assess their routines, trying to assess who wins or loses is they don't factor in judging psychology. They're just looking at the system, they're looking at what they value, and they're trying to make sense of it. But if you don't know judging psychology, you're at a huge disadvantage. And this is where I think, and this is kind of the new thing I've been realizing, like this is where you and I excel. And why do you and I excel at this? Because we judge every single round, I judge every single round, but like you basically do it, um, that I don't compete in and we review scores constantly. So one just takeaway, if you want to do better in the competition system, one of the best, most valuable things you can do is judge constantly and review judging scores constantly. Because I know with like a high degree of certainty what judges are going to do based on what's happening in a routine. And actually you have a eerie and shocking ability to predict with like down to the decimal point accuracy, what team scores will be like every time after the round, I just go up to you and I'm like, was it enough? And you, you'll be like, mm, it's probably, you probably won by like 22 points. And like <laughs> the number of times we look at the judging scores and it's like 22 points exactly is crazy. And the reason you can do that is not because you built the system. That's anyone can learn the system I explained it for 90 minutes at the Worlds this year. It's all on the competition manual. You can go to freestylejudge.com and play around with it right now. But like until you do the work of here's what judges give this, here's the kind of execution errors they care about and don't care about, like here's something that's really high risk but really low value. Like until you understand those things, like you don't like you're gonna be wrong about how it plays out and how your routine is gonna be judged. Yep. I don't know what else to really say about that, but <laughs> it's partially a call to ask people to judge. Like it's a competitive advantage to judge. And look, you learn yourself, like for all the things we talk about, there are certain things that you just do as a judge that I don't know if they're right or wrong, but like if I see a double, like it has like a minimum score. Like it doesn't matter that I think it's super <laughs> easy, but like if you hit a double and I gave you a five, I would get in trouble. Like the people next to me would be like, what's going on? I don't understand. Um, so 
figure it out. Also reminds me, me and you are playing around, like not that we have any real say, but like obviously we have influence and I think it's something we're going to bring up to the FEA. We think there probably needs to be some more formalized rule that you can't talk to a judge after the round to like really just berate them for their score. And then also judging scores maybe should be like semi anonymized. So like they're never going to be anonymous because we call up the judges and they're going to be sitting there (laughs) and like, maybe it's fine that you know what they're judging. Like, but like we don't need to make it easy for you to figure that out. And we don't necessarily need you to be able to see their individual scores. And this relates a little bit to my, like everything individually is chaos, but big picture, it kind of works. So like, if you look at even my individual div scores, there's probably lots of things you would quibble with, like in general, over the course of every routine, I'm going to be pretty accurate. It's kind of a meaningless thing to say because it's all relative and subjective. But like, I think at least I'd be consistent. Big picture, not individually, but like big picture. Um, But it's also because like, I do think it's really problematic that people talk to judges after. I've done it at least once. I'm not proud of it. Uh, Just to be like honest about it. But I try really hard not to... Well, it's actually not very hard. That one time I did it, but like otherwise, I mean, people can write me if they think I've ever like talk to them about their judging scores about me. But like, I remember early on in my career, I was like literally just walking behind the judging table, like to go get some water or something. And this is really early, like 2011 or something. And Dave Murphy came up to me later. And there's one thing I love about Dave Murphy. Like it was a little bit scary for me at the beginning, but now I really like respect and appreciate it. He was always like almost like stern and like teacher like to me at the beginning. He came up to me afterwards. (laughs) He's like, Hey, like, I know you just walked by, like you didn't do anything. You didn't see anything. You didn't talk to anybody, but like try not to walk by the judges like around the time of competition. And I was like, you know what? That's like a great rule. And like, I generally try to avoid that. Like even that, like you shouldn't even be like near the judges if you can avoid it. Like you should probably not be like high-fiving the judges before, after the round. Like I don't really like any of that. So we should probably do less and less of that. But I do think going forward, it's so inappropriate to talk to the judges after the round. And the biggest reason why is not only is it a real bummer and like a Frisbee spirit of the game sport to be questioning what a judge has done, but it has a really negative effect ex ante how people judge in the future. If you're worried that if you judge a team the way you feel is right, but then you're going to get yelled at, your judging is no longer (laughs) objective and unbiased. And yeah, so I don't know, maybe nothing will come of this. I don't like we haven't broached the subject with the FPA yet, but at least as a public service announcement, we should all try our best not to talk to judges at the end of a end of a round. Like no good can come of it. Yeah, Yeah, that actually that's a great point. Like none of this is there's like there are positive versions of this. So one, I think you can always talk to the head judge, which is basically Mm -hmm. you. And you can always look at the judging sheets and go up to the head judge and be like, I think there's a mistake, which like we haven't really ever had a mistake in a long time under the new judge system. But like, (laughs) I don't even know what a mistake would look like. But like, I mean, if there was like a zero for one's like entire judge, like that would obviously be a mistake. But I'd be surprised that we wouldn't have caught that. Um, So like there is an intermediary that's not the individual judges that I think it's fine to talk to. I think 
one reason why like we don't have a rule against it is in the old days, the idea was you can go up to talk to a judge to learn and be like, hey, like, what do you think I need to do to get higher discourse? I think the problem is that's like an entirely theoretical <laughs> assumption. Like that never happens. <laughs> I've judged every single round I haven't competed in for like five years. No one has ever come up to me and asked me, hey, like, how can I get a better score in this category? Also, <laughs> at least for me, I've never had anyone come up to me and question me about my judging, which is probably more about my force of personality and like role in the sport. But so like all this is like, I'm not complaining about something that happened to me, but like I got some feedback that other people who are not as privileged as I am, who got some pushback on their judging that I think crossed a lot of lines. So like, let's definitely try not to try not to do that. Okay. Anything else on judging there? Like at least talking to judges afterwards. No, I think that was, that was good. Okay. Um, all right. So we kind of like, <laughs> this is probably the part like most people care the most about, but let's talk a little bit about just like what happened? Like, what was the tournament? Like, how did it go? <laughs> so sorry if you made it all the way to minute, whatever <laughs> we're at. And now we're just talking about it. But in some ways I think that other stuff is more important because you can read the results and the get results. like a, <laughs> a big picture view of what happened. But like one thing you and I want to do is talk about like MVPs of the tournament, which again, it was like a low turnout, but there are definitely some, some shining stars. So maybe like, why don't you go first and give me like three names that jumped out to you? Katie, Angela. What's, what's, oh, I think I know your third. I'm going to go with Katie and Angela. That'll be my two. <laughs> yeah, that's a great choice. So talk, talk to me about them. So not only did they win women's pairs, but Katie played great the whole tournament. Like, I've never seen her leg rolls more consistent than they were at this tournament. And it's kind of like that thing where when you see it, Two years ago, you're like, that will never work. Yeah. But it would be cool if it did. And now it's like, wow, it's working. Yeah. Katie was amazing. She and she played well, not just in women's, but in all the runs. So, like, not to be negative or anything, like, I think Pablo's one of the best players in the world. He did not have a great tournament, in my view, but he, at least in like, I'm thinking a lot about like mixed right now. He played with Katie. So, like, in the mixed round, I thought Pablo was a little bit shaky, but Katie was just a rock. And like, she was completely unaffected by like any drop or mishap with Pablo. And she hit like all of her hardest moves and just looked like a really focused, ready to go competitor. So I was super like, I always hate, I like one word I love to use myself because that's how I feel, but like, I'm always worried about using it because I don't want to sound patronizing or like, this is like something like your parents would say. So I, I don't mean in this way at all, but like, I was very proud of Katie. Like I had no role in her becoming a great player. I had nothing to do with it. I'm not proud in that sense, but like I, at least for me personally, I think it's okay to be proud of someone that you've watched like really grow and thrive as a player. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was super just like incredible and exciting. So that's Katie. We'll also, have, we'll come back to Katie for some other huge praise for her, but now talk to me about Angela. The defining moment was the lefty, barrel guide us in the finals that was <laughs> i think that clenched it like that was so <laughs> yeah. so sick it was yeah it was amazing so she was really cool i guess she's been playing for two years this is the world championship of two-year winners maybe she's been playing a little longer and she's someone i think i said this before but like 
she doesn't have like the craziest vocabulary or like technical ability yet, but the things that she does do, which includes some incredible moves like a barrel guidance, she does them like a seasoned pro. Like her form mm-hmm. is incredible. Like the flow is really high. The fluidity is pretty high. And she was great. I mean, so like I was, when I was watching them compete, there was a part of me that started out being like, wow, like, are they really going to do this? Are they really ready to do this? They are, are so new. But then I like stepped back and I was like, okay, like let's compare them to like the top female players of the generation before of like Lisa, Lori, Cindy, Amy. I'm like, they're there. Like, I don't know if they're at like Cindy or Lisa level or anything, but like they would have been very competitive in 2013 when that generation was still playing. And mm-hmm. like, that was kind of a aha moment for me. I'm like, oh, wow. Like I didn't even realize it, but they're already at that top level. Yep. Yeah. And they're just like, yeah, they were, they were awesome. And they were, they had that like most authentic, just joyous energy that it was like, they were like in stark contrast to me and you, like we were, <laughs> they were hungry for the win. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, like that, that was super cool. Like, I think. Ugh, I mean, it's so like, this is where I have to be careful. Like, I don't want to say, I don't want to be like ranking my partners or anything here, but like, I do think like in some ways theirs was the most exciting win. It was the most full of just like genuine, no baggage joy of like here are two people that have worked really hard, were really excited, had that hunger mm-hmm. and they won. So like that, I mean, what else can you want from a, from a win there? Like <laughs> no controversy. It's just standing ovation everyone's happy everyone won so that was great okay um so you those are your two mvps those were two i had i had a list of four mvps you took two of mine so i'm not going to talk about angela and katie i'm going to start with my partner daniel and this is not just a he's my partner you know we go way back we started playing together as a first like all that's true whatever this is genuine authentic to me he was the number one competitive MVP. I think it's the best I've seen him play. It was the most poised I've seen him play. And I think he like carried the most weight on every team and every round. So I think like if there was ever a knock against Daniel, it was that like his emotions really seep into his play, which goes both ways. Like if things are going really well, it like super elevates what he's doing, but if things are not going so well, it can like bring down what he's doing and like sometimes derail around that might've been salvageable. But like he was stone cold ice in his veins, just like every time his teammate dropped it, boom, he was right there executing exactly what he needed to execute and hitting it like completely unfoppable. And it paid off. Like he won pairs he got second in club, which we'll talk a little bit more about. And he got second in mix. So like one, two, two out of world championships. Not a lot of people have ever done that. And he was awesome. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I've noticed that Daniel's competitive sense has gotten significantly better over the last like two years. For sure. And I think he's at the point now where he should be winning all the tournaments under the current system. Yeah. Yeah. I have to think more about it, but if I made an off the top of my head, greatest advances in competitive sense ever, it's Pavel and Daniel. Like those are two players that (laughs) like 
this is one of those weird things to say because like it cuts both ways, but like they underperformed competitively because they've been top five players for 10 years. Like obviously they won tons of stuff and were always in the mix to win, but you would have expected a player like Daniel to have won a lot more than he has. And I think it probably, I mean, some of it's just luck, bad luck, good luck, whatever. Mm-hmm. Some of it's like politics, like picking the right partners or whatever, like being able to play with the right partners. But like some of it definitely is just having that competitive sense, whatever it is. Now, I just trashed like the problem with routines and how like the things that are important in routines, I don't really value. So I'm almost like, good on you, Daniel. Like, why should you? Like, I don't like routine me. Why should you build a routine you? Like routine <laughs> routine you is like a lesser you. But, you know, that's what it takes to win. And yeah, he just, he crushed it. I was super proud of him again like i know that it's like a complicated word but he like i know how hard he's worked and like i hope he or no anyone else doesn't mind me say it, like i can imagine how hard it would be to win in 2014 and have to wait almost 10 years to win again knowing you're one of the best players in the world like that is a long wait that like like you deserved it you deserve more because you were that good and like like I'm saying, I don't think this routine based system makes a lot of sense. So it means nothing to me that you're not winning, you know, playing to on the blue Danube and Debussy. I care that like you were one of the best freestylers in the world for a decade. And I'm glad that you finally got that other validation of like getting that championship. So, you know, that's cool. I'm going to be very curious to see like what he does going forward. Like, I think he cared a lot about winning also for like very practical reasons of being able to use it to market Frisbee and himself and like freestyle. And I hope that'll be like really valuable. I think Carl Drew did something similar, like having a recent world title is something you can use as currency that can help really like our sport grow. So like, I think that's really cool, but I wonder what his future is. Like, is he more fired up to keep competing or is he sort of, you know, getting tired of it. Like I am, I have no idea. Uh, I'd be really curious like how he feels about it, but like, you know, hopefully maybe because like co-op was a little bit dicey. He's like, maybe that'll propel him. Like there's definitely a (laughs) world where I'll speak more honestly again, but like, you know, I felt like I should have won in 2019, whatever. Like I'm trying to be careful about that because I don't want to like throw anyone under the bus. And like, that's always, I guess I'll do this whole spiel a little bit. Like it's super awkward when like, results are controversial and like you feel like you shouldn't you should have or should not have won like there's no good outcome for that it's a lose-lose for everyone involved and like when i say i feel like i should have won 2019 like the sweep that doesn't mean like i'm not like invalidating anyone's world championships you are the one who beat me in 2019 like we're still best buddies pavel and i are still best buddies children are still you guys had nothing to do with that and also like in the moment I didn't necessarily think we should have won, which is like the irony of the whole thing. I just thought like one judge's results were like a huge outlier. And like, that's why that one really bummed me out. And then also, like I said, like, I think that was the best I ever played. And like, I went dropless in the finals. So like all those factors is what made me feel like, man, like that was my chance. I should have had it. I should have won. And I was like very disappointed that I didn't because I didn't know that opportunity would come around again. And I didn't think I would play that well again. And I also think I wouldn't have cared if like I played really badly and like almost won everything. Cause it'd be like, whatever, like 
I'm not going <laughs> to care about any of those rounds. So I say all this to say like the positive spin on it. If I had won in 2019, all of it, even though I wasn't like totally ready to retire, I probably would have retired. I'd have been like, I got the sweep. I went drop us in the finals. Like what else? What am I doing here? Like, I don't need to do anything else. I'm out. And then COVID would have happened and I probably would have definitely been out. <laughs> it's just been like, <laughs> I don't need to do this anymore. But like, in some ways it was a huge blessing because like we talked about on another podcast, I use that as a growth mindset. And like, I put a shard of my second place trophy on my bedroom, like bookshelf. So that every morning I woke up and I looked at that and I was like, okay, like I'm going to get better so that I can get this thing that I felt like I should have gotten. And like, I got five more world titles out of that. Now, maybe I don't really care that much about having five more world titles, but like, at least it kept me competing. So that was a long diatribe that I'm probably going to wish I hadn't gone into, but I'm trying to like spin it as like not having the results you want can be a blessing in a lot of ways. Like it certainly got more competitive years out of me. And I guess I can also say counterpoint, I did win all three this year, but I don't think I played that well. And so I'm not like super celebratory about it. But at least like <laughs> on paper, I achieved the thing that was like the one thing that eluded me. And so like, that's probably the only piece I'm ever going to get. But world titles won't bring you peace. Like, I don't know how many other ways to say that for anyone who thinks it's going to change their life. Can't buy happiness. Did that make sense at all? Or did I just like go on a random diatribe that was... No, that makes sense. But I've also heard you explain that yeah several times before yeah. but I, I mean i'm mostly saying it, and this is where like i'm probably like crossing into way too honest territory but like thinking about like wondering how daniel will like feel about this year because he got like first second and second and like again we'll talk about co-op a little bit but like i can see a world and i hope there's a world where it's fueling him same thing with like will like as i mentioned before like i hope it fuels him like i've talked about how like when i went in 2012 uh, at least in my, for me personally, I felt like the narrative was like, oh, like the conditions were bad. Like they got lucky. And for me, I was like, okay, like I'm going to use that to try to get better at this and like prove to them that like I'm worthy of a world championship. Because there is this thing, at least for me, which I know a lot of other people don't like feel this way, but it's something like what matters is that you're capable of it, not necessarily that you do it. <laughs> and like, I think this is a bigger deal in other sports. Like, in basketball, there's 30 teams. There's one championship a year. The best players might only have like three or four peak years. So like most best players ever don't win one. And it's just like completely out of their control. But like the point is that you could have and like you were good enough to win. And so like it's nice to get that external validation of winning. But I just for me, it's like just knowing you could have had it. Like even 2019, I feel like I've been at this point where I was like, yeah, like I know I did what it took to get a sweep, even if I didn't get it. And like, that mm. was the thing that I was going to hold with me. Like I could say like, I went dropless in the finals. There's one, there's one drop where you have to sign guilt. But like, I think Daniel was like, I'm taking that one. So worst case, <laughs> you can say I dropped one in 2019. Not the case this year. I dropped a ton this year. It was so bad. Okay. That was my, that was just my Daniel MVP speech. Okay. But I have, <laughs> I have two more. Timek. He's so good. He's so good. I love him. <laughs> I had a great jam with him at the end. He's truly clock and counter. He plays so smoothly. I actually thought they would place better in pairs because they had a really clean round, especially for like the first two minutes. 
I think they suffered a little bit, which we can talk about with co-op of like doing like a Tommy more old school style routine, like more geared toward the old system. But just like all around, there's nothing bad to say about him. He's great player, super nice person, fantastic person to jam with. And he definitely stood out to me. And I think he stood out to everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. Timic was on my list, but I wanted you to say him. Uh, I mean, he was the one who, when I was going up to jam, I was like, okay, what's Timic up to? And like, I think he's (laughs) one of the only people I went up to repeatedly and was like, hey, do you want to play? Because I just wanted to play with him. And man, he's just, he's got all the right decision-making tools. I think it's awesome. And then I guess I'll do two more, but I'll group them together. Anka and Chesco are like the new superstars. Like I told both of them before even like the rounds we started, I was like, this is my last year. And if you both were not competing and playing, I wouldn't feel like I was allowed to retire. But like, I feel like as long as there's enough top level all time talent playing, I'm okay. You know what I mean? Like I, I would not yep. stop freestyling <laughs> if I knew that like, whatever, like I'll pick the on my own past. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if I knew like, you know, the two free freshmen that I just started teaching were going to be like competitive at worlds this year as a pairs team, I would be like, okay, like I can't retire yet because it has to mean something to win. But like knowing that, like, I think for me, I have to like do my, I have to like make a formal list and look at a list of players, but like Edo, Chesco and Anka, like they're out there, they're young, they're incredibly skilled. They're as good as anyone I've ever seen play. And that's all I need to know. Like, I'm good. You're out there. It's your job now. So I thought they were great. They had bad luck. I think Anka lost her nail in the open pairs final. Like that's a huge bummer, but they were just amazing. I especially like had a couple of jams with Anka and another incredible decision maker just like every choice she makes is is just like spot on okay cool uh i guess i guess two more let's do two more topics let's talk about the like organizational mvps and then let's like really briefly to the extent we haven't haven't already covered it like talk about the results a little bit so organization mvps hit me mine are Katie, Andreas, and the sound guy. I don't know his name, but he was there every day. Yeah. So tell yeah. me about, we talked a little bit about, let's, let's do Katie last. Cause I feel like okay. for me, she gets the biggest shout out. I'll say about the sound guy. It's such an underrated thing, but the sound was flawless for every routine except for Katie's, <laughs> but in like the semis <laughs> or something, but he did it the right way. Like they got the music on the Google drive. Yep. He uploaded he had a it. computer. Yeah. Yep. Like uploaded it to something like audition or final like logic, whatever it was, played it. Like it was always the right volume. It was always there on time. We weren't waiting around to get the music set up. I think it's really awkward and like competitively problematic when a team goes up to play and there's music problems. So that was fantastic. I thought they did a great job. Also, whoever was filming and uploading things did a great job. Like every day at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. All the routines were uploaded to Google. Part of me wishes they were uploaded to YouTube. But then another part of me is like, hey, like, I don't necessarily want all my routines on YouTube. So (laughs) maybe it's nice that you give people the choice. I'll have to think about that. But that was really great. No problems there. And 
Andres. I thought Andres did a good job. I know there were some criticisms that like communication wasn't always great about like what times things start, like moving indoors, like where you need to be when. I kind of agree. I think that's true at every tournament I've ever been to in my entire life. I wish it were better. I think in the future we can do it better. I also think there's lots of language barriers going on. I also think we don't have a centralized communication platform anymore. We don't all use Facebook. We're not all on WhatsApp. It's like there's definitely some communication issues I think we can improve. But like Andres just did a good job. He was there every day. He was the first one there, the last one to leave. He kept things running smoothly. And I think scheduling, to me, the biggest concern is if we don't run on time, we can't have a worldwide audience because they don't know when to watch. Mm -hmm. But like from a competitive standpoint, I'm kind of just like, you're here. You need to be here all day, every day, and you need to be ready to play. And not everyone agrees with me on that. That's fine. But it doesn't really bother me that much with rounds from a competitive standpoint, if rounds need to be moved or whatever. What do you think? Uh, I can go. It depends on the scale, like Frisbeer, whenever. But World Championships, finals day, run on the schedule. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, we'll come back to our organization MVPs, but like obviously there's a little bit of controversy about moving indoors. I think we talked a little bit about it last time. So here's my understanding of how it all played out. So finals was always going to be inside because they lost the outdoor space or something. Like there was a purely facility-based reason it was inside. It's a huge bummer that no one knew about this until like literally a week before worlds. Like mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this, like Dan and I practiced every day outside. Daniel got on a plane to leave and then he texted me from the plane, like worlds is inside. And I was like, Oh man, like there was a lot of things we could have done differently if we knew it was going to be inside. And then as far as going inside on the semis and quarters days, I guess there was really only semis this year. There's a couple of things like one, the rain situation was like very, iffy the whole time and you know every time i'd ask like katie like what's the rain gonna do or andres they were like in medellin you never know like the forecast (laughs) just means nothing and who knows what the conditions are going to be like and then the wind was really bad so like we did have one day outside i don't think we did any rounds that day but like we were playing out that day and the wind was was bad would you agree yep like it was jamming tolerable which on the one hand, you might think, well, if it's jamming tolerable, why isn't it routine tolerable? It's because like it was coming from a different direction every 30 seconds. Yeah, like the jam was a circle. That's the kind of wind it was. Yeah, it was really tough. Like I think it was going to be a bloodbath if it had been outside. And so I know one day Katie did a poll of players that were still at the tournament, which I get is an imperfect method, but I don't know what else you want to do. Like again, we don't really have a good centralized way to talk to people. And I actually thought that if you did a poll, everyone would have said to go outside, but apparently more people said inside. It wasn't like a runaway or anything, like more people voted to go inside. Now there's a little bit of complexity because I think at the time she did the poll, we thought we'd be able to jam outside, but like go inside for the rounds. And it turns out we had to go inside the whole time. So you could quibble that it wasn't a perfect poll but part of why i'm surprised people voted to go inside is you have a little bit of a tyranny of the majority situation 
which is that really only the competitors care about going inside because it affects your routine and your ability to perform. Whereas the people who are jamming would obviously rather be outside. Like even me, I'd rather be outside if we're going to be jamming, I think. I mean, the wind was really bad, so maybe I was better off inside. But uh, but even so, like most people go to do inside and they moved it inside. And there was a, a couple other like factors in this just to lay it all out there and people can judge it however they want. Um, the indoor spot was far from the field. So if there had been rain or like catastrophic wind, we would have had a hard time getting everything over to the gym and finishing in time. And we only had the gym from like the morning until 4 PM every day. So like if we started the rounds outside at like noon and something went wrong outside, we would have had till six or seven. But if we went to the gym and the gym closed at four, we could have been in a difficult situation. And then I guess the last thing was because we knew the finals were going to be inside it, at least to me, felt like people should be doing the routines and preparing the routines inside. Um, so <laughs> like that's part of why I voted to go inside, but whatever, not everyone's happy about it. I will say just so like preempt anybody competitively, it did not matter to me whether it was inside or outside before the finals. Cause like I'm going to make the finals <laughs> in a 10 team open pairs tournament. And all that matters is me getting to the finals. <laughs> like I wasn't like really that worried about competitive aspect of it, but I was also concerned about for a lot of these players, this is going to be their only big tournament for like years. And I don't want them to get boosted by the conditions. I'd rather them be able to perform in circumstances where they could know if I stand here and throw it here, it's going to work. So yep. anyways, it wasn't that controversial. It's just like the same couple of people that don't like to go inside, but it's not like, at least from my perspective, I didn't hear any like big swell of frustration that we went inside, which we have had in other years, but I didn't hear a lot of complaints about that. Did you? I didn't hear. No. Okay. Okay. I want to insert one name before we talk about Katie. Okay. So like uh, talking about how when one era is done and someone picks it up, picks up the torch, mm -hmm. Tom Leitner running the live stream for the whole tournament. I know my mom talked to me or like messaged me. It was like, wow, I'm so glad someone live streamed the event. And it was, I think it was just purely Tom Leitner with his phone on a tripod. That's a great call. Tom wins so many awards in my mind for this tournament. Like Nanal is he still one of the best players in the world. I mean, there's just no question. He was amazing. Like he is so important to just the new generation. Like, again, I'm trying to be careful. I'm probably gonna be less and less careful as this podcast goes on. So I'm sorry. Like, like Tom's got friends. Tom's got enemies. Like if you do the sport for long enough, <coughs> that's going to happen. And like Tom and I personally have like, publicly butted heads over lots of like random freestyle issues but i love tom like i love him as a person he like it's so easy for you know people that are on the list of greatest players of all time to just hoard their success hoard <laughs> their generation and just be like we were the best and like forget all this new stuff but tom is the exact opposite of that like he is the person who finds those gems that are really starting to excel at freestyle and he says i'm going to take you and i'm going to support you and i'm going to bring you to the next level like he did that with me i feel like he was doing that with timic at this tournament i think there's tons of top top freestylers around the world who would say tom played a big role 
and their development. And then even though like Tom and I have disagreed about lots of random things, like I think he's among the people who really wanted to be outside at Worlds. Once the decision's made, couldn't find a nicer person to just be like, okay, like no worries, like moving on. So he was fantastic the whole event. He always had a good attitude. He did everything anyone asked of him. He was super supportive. And like Will came up to me multiple times and was like, man, Tom is just so nice. And like, that's almost to me like, if, it's like if my child came up to me and was like, this person is really nice. And I'm like, oh, what can I do for them? Like, I like it made me so <laughs> feel so good that Tom was just like making you know, my freestyler, I don't want to use like my, but like, just like obviously I have this connection to Will and like knowing that, like I'm about to start crying. Like it really like gratis Tom. I don't think he listens to the podcast, but like hopefully message gets to him that he was super appreciated at world. So that's a great call. Like both as a competitor and just as a person on hand, dude sat through the entire 90 minute judging system explanation. <laughs> yeah. Like he's just, he's just a great guy. He really is. So I hope, especially anyone who's ever like butted heads with him, like I have, like just know that guy's got a heart of gold. So that's a great call. Okay. Then Katie was like kind of our last MVP. I don't think she had a formal role as a tournament director or anything, but she <laughs> sure as heck did so much stuff to make sure the tournament ran effectively. She was definitely the translator for the entire event. She was making sure things that needed to happen happened. She judged when we needed her to judge. She jammed constantly. She won the tournament. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what else to say. Like, she was awesome. There was that uh, scene from Ocean's 12 where they're like talking about what they should have named the Ocean's 11 bank job. Mm -hmm. And they're, everyone's like, wait, they're arguing like who's in charge and like, wait, who do you call when you have a problem? And everyone's like Brad Pitt's character. Yeah. Katie was Brad Pitt at the at Worlds this year. Exactly. Yeah. I hope I hope she feels the appreciation for it because it it makes a difference. I mean, like we said before about people stepping up at the right times. Like this sport survives because people step up, and Katie stepped up in a big way a lot of different times. So that was great. Also, like there were lots of other like Medellin people helping. I wish I knew all their names or like what all they did, but there was a really great crew. I mean, this is probably like I probably don't do a good enough job of this because I'm so stressed out at Worlds. But like every day, just everything got set up. And like I think I carried like one chair one time <laughs> and like everything got taken down. And I was never in that moment. I was like, ugh, like they really need help. Like, I don't want to be like lifting a 50 pound speaker and carrying it for 20 minutes right now, right before I compete. But maybe I need to do it this tournament. Like there was always a crew there just making it happen. So mm -hmm. like it was actually super well run in that regard. Oh, another MVP judging system version three. Nothing went <laughs> wrong. Like no hold up because of a computer problem or someone's tablet not working, whatever, at least as far as I'm aware, just rent. No one ever switched to paper. We didn't even have paper around <laughs> the judges. Like it was just, it just worked. Right. Yep. I think it's at the point where I can hand it off or I can start fielding it for like, if there are any volunteers that want to learn about it, that want to take over, it's at that point. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not talking about the substance of it, but like it works like the system mm -hmm. technically <laughs> worked. 
I mean, the back software. When we, yeah. Yeah. When <laughs> we first started, there was a lot more problems of like, Bob, yep. it froze mid round. Like let's write it down on paper and then we'll add it back in later. Or like time in between teams, the jetting system was contributing to that because like something went wrong or like the number of times where like you and I are trying to warm up for something and it's like, Ryan, Ryan <laughs> called back, called back. You have to fix something that really didn't happen at this tournament. And this is a continuation. We saw this at Frisbeer was the first tournament that used version three and it was great. Like even the setup in the morning, which I had basically nothing to do with, which is great. That was more, more things that will are taking over for me. Like it seemed like you guys were over on the table for five minutes and then it was ready to go. Yep. Yeah. The setup and takedown is so much faster now. Yeah. And we carried the entire system in one Medellin Frisbee backpack, like one of those tiny <laughs> yeah. little bags carried the whole system. So that was super awesome. All right. Let's talk about the part that probably other people care about, but I could care less about. So like who won? We talked about women. So I don't know if we need to go over, th- over that anymore. Like I think that was a great victory. I think like BB and Oka were probably the favorites to win. They didn't play that well. I think they totally knew that and were like, I actually, in my mind, if I'm being really honest, like I thought it was closer than probably other people did probably in my whole thing of like, I can still see that BB and Ilka are like still far superior freestylers. And like that kind of like leaks into my, well, that's what I'd say. Like rightly or wrongly, I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong, but like when I watch them play, like I see greater mastery and that gets reflected in how I view that's their routine. That's we're different. Yeah. I'm like just counting in my brain and I'm like, oh, that's a landslide. Yeah. So again, like I'm not even saying I'm right about that. Like I'm happy to defend it to anyone who questions it. But like I like it's almost like think about it from judging difficulty of like you might have done the same two moves, but you sh- your move was way smoother, more fluid, <laughs> more whatever. It's like you got more points for me. It's like that's the lens that I see freestyle through that I don't think everyone shares. I also think like being a little bit arrogant again, I think that's probably something that comes from being a top skilled player. Like I see freestyle differently than other people. And I'm not even saying that's right or wrong, but it's just like, I value skill more. It's like, I had those teams like a little bit closer in my head, but I think everybody else had it like pretty clearly Katie and Angela win. And I Mm -hmm. certainly had no problem with that at all. I thought like, like I said, I think they had the most joy and their routine. I think they overperformed and they did have those big things. Like, I think even, I think even their highs were higher. So like, this is almost the opposite of what normally happens, but I think their hardest moves were harder than what BB and Ilka did. But I just thought like BB and Ilka, just like baseline was really like high. Anyways, mm-hmm. anything you agree or disagree with about that? No, that was a good summary. Yeah. Cool. Mixed. I was not a hundred percent paying attention to all the teams and I haven't watched them all yet. So take what I say with a grain of salt. But one, I thought a lot of teams played really well. Um, I definitely noticed Daniel and Angela played really well in both rounds. So more kudos to Angela, especially for blossoming at this tournament and showing that she's a top player. And again, Daniel, like I said, was just like crushing every round. They played amazing. Katie played amazing and her mixed rounds. I have an interesting take on you and BB, which you and I talked about a lot, which I found like very <laughs> interesting. So you guys, what did you guys get in the end? Fourth, fourth, third, fourth, fourth. So I actually think I wasn't judging, obviously in my head. And again, I didn't watch all the routines that closely. 
I could have had you guys anywhere on the podium, option including number one, if you had like, I don't know, like emotion earmuffs on. Like when I was watching <laughs> y'all play, I was like, okay, like they're catching everything. They're doing lots of hard stuff. It's very smooth. They have like, just in terms of just raw freestyle skill, you guys basically equal every team. Like, I mean, me and you are both top players. Ilk and BB are both top players. Um, you play it to the wrong version, but a version of a song <laughs> that I think is fantastic, but it was completely dead. Like, and I don't even think it was your fault. Like I said this, I didn't know why people weren't clapping, but there was something like emotionally stunted about y'all's routine. And I think that played a big role in y'all placing fourth. What do you think? I think possibly, but this was like a laugh. Like the main thing was BB was very happy after the, after the round, like she should be because she played well. Yeah. I was like, that's good enough for me. Like that's all I needed from that because it was such a last minute yeah. I'll talk about this more later. Yeah. I guess I just wanted to bring it up in terms of an interesting idea. Cause this has happened to me too. I even feel like it started happening at the beginning of our co-op where you're like, what's wrong? Like I'm hitting everything <laughs> I want to hit. I'm hitting the music the way I want to hit it, but there's something that's not connecting in the right way. And this is also where I think a little bit of our grumpy old freestyler thing is coming into play. So you know, we've talked a lot about overperformance and underperformance and how overperforming kind of gives you a boost, underperforming hurts you. And sometimes that's a problem because it's more likely to hurt top players than new players. So like I think that was a little bit of what happened in women's, which is to say, like Katie and Angela, at least based on expectation, overperformed. So they got a boost for that. BB and Ilka underperformed, so they got, you know, a deduction for that. And like that's not always fair because sometimes the top team really did play better, but it was emotionally less satisfying because they underperformed. So it, it's like a similar idea here where I think like me and you, especially we're so over this and like, so <laughs> like, like when other people's adrenaline is probably at like a hundred percent, ours is at like 50%. Cause you know, like you said, like our, our dopamine circuits are destroyed. Like our adrenaline circuit, whatever that's called is like completely over it. And so I think, there's an aspect where you and BB were cruising and like not trying as hard and <laughs> like you got punished for that, which I'm not sure is right. Like in my view, it's kind of not right. But I think the counter argument is like there's a big emotional component to routines and yours didn't hit that. That's I could be wrong. So like, sorry if I'm speaking in a way that's not right, but that's how I felt in the moment. And I mostly mean it as a positive thing of like, I thought you guys played really well and I was surprised that didn't translate to audience reaction or scoring reaction. Anyways, people will say what they say. Who got third again? It was Pablo and Katie. Awesome. Yeah. So Katie was just on fire and I don't remember yeah. their round. I think there's just especially the round that I missed a little bit of. Um, but I think that's totally, totally cool. Totally valid. Mm -hmm. All right. Open. Oh yeah. And then me and Ilka won. So, okay. A few things about that. One, there was this really cool thing happening, which is there was a documentary that some German filmmakers are doing on Ilka, which is very cool, except like I was a little comfortable because like Ilka, to her credit, asked me like over Telegram a million months ago, like, hey, they're doing this documentary. Do you mind? And I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. I don't care. But then when I walked to the like opening party and was like <laughs> saying hi to everyone and suddenly there was cameras on my face, I was like, oh, no, like this is super uncomfortable for me. 
And even though obviously I talk all the time and I talk on this podcast, I'm not very comfortable talking spur of the moment, short form interview questions. I was like, I felt super awkward the whole time. I'm super nervous about what I say on camera and how I sound. I also think like when I get uncomfortable, I like joke a lot and I was like making a lot of jokes, but I wasn't sure, especially to non-English speakers, that the fact that I was joking was coming through. Like I think at one point, like Ilka and my whole relationship is sort of like, she's critical of me for thinking like I'm like too competitive, which again, I push back on, but like that's, I think it's kind of her view. And like, I'm always joking with her. No, no, no. Like it's just, we're just having fun. So like one of the first things we were talking about with the cameras there, I was like, we're just gonna have lots of fun. And I was like saying it kind of like corny, leave it to Beaver. And I'm worried that they're not going to fully understand like the context of that, but whatever it is what it is. So like with all that said, I felt like it changed the dynamics a little bit of the tournament of like, okay, like we have this film crew here and they're filming what's happening. And like, how is that going to reflect on freestyle? And how do I feel that it's this tournament? And so on the one hand, I'm like, wow, it's a huge bummer that this is by far the smallest worlds ever. And this is the world where we have a film crew at. So that is a huge bummer. Another weird dynamic is the stakes felt very different than normal of like, okay, what, how does the story change if Ilka doesn't win women's or mixed? And is it still a compelling story or not? And from a more important perspective to me, like from a personal standpoint, like how is Ilka going to feel if she's got this documentary crew following her at her world championship event and doesn't perform well or win. Mm -hmm. And so like I was acutely aware of those stakes because I, as her partner in mixed have a huge role in what happens, how we play. She could crush it and I could play terribly and I could ruin her documentary. (laughs) So I felt like a different emotional valence about mix than I did the other rounds. And then Ilk and I, as we've talked about, I think on this podcast have this kind of like kind of complicated relationship with each other as it goes to competing. And so like, it's already kind of like a dicey situation where I'm like trying to make sure that I am being the person she needs me to be in competition, which is maybe like a little different than how I normally am. And so I was like balancing all these like factors that I'm not normally balancing and just handling mix. It's like, it's Ilka. So I have to like treat that with a certain like difference than I'm maybe like normally inclined to. It's a world which is always puts more stakes and there's a film crew and like all of this matters. So the semis, we played really well. And like, I was like, okay, if nothing else, like the film crew is here, they're going to have a good round to show where we hit some pretty good stuff. Now it wasn't perfect. It never is. Like we missed a lot of the music that I wanted us to hit. And like, I think Ilka especially like missed a couple things that I think she would have rather have hid. And I remember the film crew asked me afterwards, they were like, so like, how do you feel about that? Like, do you think like you're going to do better in the finals? And I was like, no, (laughs) I was like, I "I know that didn't look that impressive because it wasn't because this is routine based freestyle, but that's like the best we could have hoped for. I mean, that was everything we could have possibly realistically wanted. And I was like, oh man, y'all are going to be so disappointed in the finals if (laughs) you think like we would be unhappy with what we just did. Okay. So get, get to the finals, fast forward, they play women's, 
I judged. So I knew with like a high degree of certainty that they got second. So now I'm like, okay, it's just mixed. This is, it all comes down to this. Like if we don't win mixed, the documentary story is going to be what it is. (laughs) And I also felt a high degree of pressure. Like I often do, which I've talked about on the podcast before, which is that when people play with me, they, and I'm not saying Ilka does. I have no idea. I haven't talked with her about this. I actually think Ilka would be the exception to this rule, but like a lot of people are like, this is my chance to win. And that makes sense. Like you tell me I have like a 75% win rate. So like people put a lot of pressure on our performance because they want to get what they want to get out of it. And that puts a lot of pressure on me because I could care less at this point whether I win another random tournament. But if I know I'm playing with someone who hasn't won before, a lot of stakes on that for me. Now you might think Ilka, number one women's player in the world, what does she care about winning anymore? I don't think she cares that much about winning, but she's never won a mixed title. She's only won a women's title, world title. And she's only made the podium one other time in mixed. So I think whatever she actually feels or whatever she would say, I have no idea. But for me, I'm thinking like I'm playing with one of the best female freestylers ever. She has never won mixed before. There's a documentary film crew following her journey (laughs) to the world championship. She's playing with me, the current number one open player in the world. I better freaking play well so that like this works out the storybook way. And we had built two routines. They're basically the same, but like they have a few things and we had never done the finals routine before. And I knew, and I'm curious what Ilka will write me after she listens to this podcast. I knew our finals routine was way harder and like much more risky basically because it's the same as the semis routine with like six more phrases in it. So like everything (laughs) is so much faster and there's just like no wiggle room at all. And we played fine. Like (laughs) it wasn't great. Uh, It wasn't, I don't know how to put it. Like this is where I just struggle with routine based freestyle. Like it probably was objectively really good based on what we would expect from routine based freestyle, especially under the new system where like drops don't matter that much. But like, there's a lot of drops that I would love to have back. And there's like a lot of aspects of it that I wish were better. And we had something that never happened to us before in all of our practice, which we have a two disc exchange off of like a downwind drag set and they hit each other. And after that, like the whole routine kind of got thrown out the window. So there was a part of me that was actually really worried that Ilka was going to be super bummed because I think one of the things that mattered most to Ilka was hitting the routine that we prepared. And I didn't want her to be bummed that, we kind of went a little bit into jam mode at the end because of that error. And I think not surprisingly when we go into jam mode, like I start to carry a little bit more. And like, as we talked about when she's on the podcast, like it's important to her for it not to just be like me, 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 me. Um, but luckily it was like at the very end of the routine. And I think she was, as far as I could tell, super happy with it. And I think like it was, it was good. And like, I don't, this is where it turns out I am a bad judge. So like, sorry to the people that I go up to and I say like, oh, I don't think we played that well. We'll see. And then they get their hopes up and then I win. But like, I thought it would be like close, but I hadn't watched the other teams that closely. So I wasn't really sure, but you told me like, you're going to win. Like, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that long story to say is like, we got the win. Hopefully that like creates some cool story for that documentary. I'm sure Ilka is very happy to get that mixed win. But also I do genuinely think like Ilka 
in a different way than me and you is totally overwinning. Like that's not what's important to her. <laughs> and I think that's a, a really great attribute. And I actually wish we were like her because I think she has like a very like healthy, positive version of like, I don't care about winning. Whereas at least for me, my version of, I don't care about winning is like, I'm over it. Like this isn't that exciting anymore. Like mine's like burnout. <laughs> yeah. My, that's the best way to put it. Mine's rooted in burnout and hers is rooted in like healthy psychology. So <laughs> But cool, like that was that was that was great. And I had one moment that I was really happy about in that routine. Like I hit some double, and then I turn around, and she sets me for the parapraxis, and I hit the parapraxis, and we had like a good like audience <laughs> moment. And to me, like that was probably my highlight of the tournament. Just like there was this one moment, and it was like the one time I was like, I'm retiring. Like everyone's watching, everyone's <laughs> cheering. I hit like my little dorky move that I invented. And like, it's happening. Like that was the, like, if there was any moment of triumph in all this, it was, it was that one right there. So that was cool. All right. Any other thoughts on mixed? Nope. That was good. This yeah. is just a standard two and a half hour post worlds <laughs> podcast, whatever. <laughs> Open pairs. I don't remember watching all the teams here. One thing that was tricky about this world is it was a, I, one thing we didn't say the finals venue was amazing. Like it was a coliseum with beautiful natural light. There were weirdly some people watching. So like it didn't feel totally barren, weird, typical worlds in a random place feeling. Like it felt kind of like there was some audience there, but it was still like a giant empty coliseum. So like one thing that kind of <laughs> happened was like I would look over and suddenly we're like three teams into the finals. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize we'd started. <laughs> so <laughs> I missed a few of the open pairs teams, but in the end, me and Daniel won. You and Will got second, which we'll, mm -hmm. excuse me, talk about. Did Tom and Timmy get third or someone else did? The Colombians got third. The Colombians got third. And then Tom and Timmy got fourth. Okay. So I, uh, Chesco and Anka. Wow. So Timmy and Tom got fifth, fifth crazy. Okay. So here's what I saw anyways. And again, I wasn't paying that much attention. So let's start with Tom and Timmick. I think they shredded. Again, I didn't look that closely, but probably in my book, they would have gotten third. Like I'd have to watch it again, even maybe second. But like they went in my brain, which is never a good indicator. I'm sure I'm going to watch the video and they have like five drops in 10 seconds. But in my brain, they went like two whole minutes dropless. And I was preparing myself for a dropless routine because <laughs> to put you inside my psychology, when I'm watching teams go, my brain is, unless they go dropless, I will win. Now, that's not always true. <laughs> but like in my head, I'm like, the only thing that can really threaten me is a dropless routine. Because if you go dropless, you're going to have like real magic. And you're going to get magic points, we'll call them. Like mm -hmm. across the board, your scores will be higher, even if it makes no sense. Dropless routines just have a certain magic. And even one drop is like kind of threatening. It's like, especially the early teams. Again, like take this through. I'm just an honest person these days. Soon as the team drops it one time, especially if it's in the first 30 seconds, I go back to warming up. Like, I don't need to see anything else. I'm not scared. Later teams, I'll watch more. But like, so Tom and Timek, I was watching and I was like, okay, like, this is what I remember telling myself this exact thing. I was like, this is what world is supposed to be like. I've been in this situation a thousand times. Like, I've seen teams shred and I have to go out there and I have to do better. And I was kind of calculating like, okay, like how many drops do I get to still be the dropless dream? I'm like preparing everything. And then whatever, they had like four or five drops. I don't know how many they had. They probably had way more than that. But like 
it did not feel like a lot of drops, but in my head, I was like, okay, they don't have the magic power. And it was an old school style routine, meaning like more indies, longer combos, slower combos, much more geared towards the old system and the new system. So in my head, I was like, okay, like, and I think maybe they had one double, like, in my head, I was like, okay, I'm fine. We're going to be fine. Um, But like, that was a great team. They should probably get like podium. Cool. Don't remember the order here. Anka and Chesco go up. Anka loses a nail immediately. And they kind of like, I didn't watch all of it, but I saw like enough like Frisbee hell that I was like, wow, like that hurts. Like they're out. (laughs) And yeah, so I don't think I saw the last like minute and a half of the routine, but I saw enough where I was like, okay, like even they are not really going to be threatening here. And I felt super bad for Anka because I haven't personally lost a nail in a routine. I was about to knock on wood, but I don't care. I'm retired. Like I've been on a team that's lost a nail in the routine and it's a huge bummer. And they've gotten second to like everything. And to me, like I actually thought they were the favorites. Like really now maybe this is where like, because I'm judging myself, like I don't always do the best job, but like in my head, I was like, okay, especially under the new system, they, and like the routines I saw them do the last two years, I was like, no one, maybe other people don't realize it, but they're the favorites. Like they should be me and Daniel if everything goes right. That's how I felt. Like first, let me stop there. Am I wrong or right about that? Uh, counting stats would disagree. I think you you win the counting. Okay. I mean, we'll, like, we can talk more about the it. robots but like, watching, they're, they're not worried. Yeah, definitely. Just in my head, I'm like, they're going to have so many nines and tens and they built really good routines as really good music. And Anka was born a cold-blooded competitor, so good at competing. And Chesco, I should add to my Pavel Daniel list. I think he's really improved in his competitive sense. So like they were the team I was most scared about, for sure. It's like not even close. So when they bowed out, I was like, okay, like door is pretty open now. And then I don't remember when you guys played. You and Will played. And you guys put the fear of God in me because <laughs> you played to the system. And I mean that as a compliment, not like when other people use that. So I was just watching. I was like, okay, they already have like six doubles and like we're 30 (laughs) seconds into the routine. And I was starting to work out like how many places in my routine can I add a double (laughs) that I don't already have one. And one thing which we can talk about is like, I love Daniel. I love our routine together. It was not optimized at all for the world. Like you actually said something about my mixed and pairs routines and my partners, and I'll let you say it. Wait, well, I don't remember. <laughs> you said you said something like your teammates didn't take advantage of you. Oh, is that, yeah, I think it's always in the context like when I'm playing with you, I try and get the full value out of your skills, but yeah, your other partners. Like, yeah. There's definitely a thing, and this is like the difference between competing and like trying to put the routine you want together. But like every time I'm building a routine, I'm like, if you let me, I can win this in the first 30 seconds. Like if you just like, just give me, just give me a little bit of breathing room and I'll win this for us. But like, I don't usually push that because I don't really want to play that way either. And like, especially this year I'm playing with Daniel and Ilka and like Daniel and Ilka have like very like specific visions for what they want to do in the routine. And I'm curious what they would say, but like, I tried really hard not to like get in the way of that. So like, I really think like, I hope this doesn't like bother me. Like, I think it was really like an Ilka routine and a Dano routine. Like I had a lot of input, obviously, 
and like was really involved. But like, I think they will feel a lot more authorship over those routines than I do. And if my only goal had been to win, which it wasn't like I could win that tournament like pretty easily. It's <laughs> so like even watching you and Will play, I was just like, okay, like I could just break that co-op and throw in a triple <laughs> and then like restart it. I was like, there's a lot of ways I could do this. Um, yeah, anyway. we talk about roles a lot, right? Yeah, basically like I would go into a carry role is like the idea. Yep. So like in my mixed in open routine, that's like I do a lot of carrying, but let's say a Dota analogy, like the net worths were I had 20,000 and Daniel had 20,000. But like if if you just let me have 60,000, then like we can really start just like crushing the judging system. And I'm talking about judging system, by the way. I'm not talking about like skill. I just mean like if you mm-hmm. let me, I will abuse the system and I will destroy it. Um, yep. I think the part that is important is in Dota, there's carries and supports, but you need the supports to win the game. Like you can't win the game without the supports. So there's like no shame in not being the carry. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in fact, in Dota, like I think the fives are like the best players in the world. It's really, like, yeah, they are. They have to do the most difficult things. So anyways, like I was kind of watching you guys play and I was like, Oh man, like this is going to be the one that's a bummer because like I could beat y'all, but the routine isn't set up for me <laughs> to do it. Um, but there was a flip side to all this, which is I was watching will become like twice as good in real time in a routine <laughs> Four doubles, double flamingitis, double flawed, double chair. And it was a double flamingo, double laser. Double double laser. laser. Those are four legitimate doubles. That's not a under the leg and a different kind of under the leg. That's a double flamingitis. I mean, that's so many points right there. He should have gotten like four, eight and a half or nines. Like, if it was on my gen sheet, I probably would have docked him a little bit because his form is a little bit like uh, sloppy and out of control. But just like I said, you get base double points. Those were base mm-hmm. hard doubles. And based on the fact that they were the second to last team and no one else had really done any doubles, like he should have been getting eight and a half and nines for those. And then you crushed a bunch of doubles. But you, I think, I'm maybe mixing up my routines. Y'all also had a tiny bit of the why aren't people getting more excited vibes? And I think that's partially because, and I told you guys this before we played in co-op. I don't think we did it, but like Will is too ice cold calm. Like he just was, <laughs> he did look like the Terminator out there. Just like, I'm going to hit this double and I'm going to hit this double and I'm going to hit this hard move and no problem. And you were also like super calm and mellow. And it felt like people weren't getting as into it as I would have expected. But then you had enough drops that I felt pretty confident that Dan and I could win. But here's also a problem with the whole judging world and routine-based competition. When I was worried that like Tom and Timek would win because they were going dropless, I was like, I wonder if Daniel would agree if I said, let's play to Alexi Hente and jam. Because I thought <laughs> like if we jammed, I could score a lot more points. And then when you guys dropped a bunch, I was also like, I wonder if Daniel would let me jam. <laughs> so like, there was kind of this weird thing where I was like, either because the teams were too good, we should jam or the teams were so bad that we can jam. But like, it's actually kind of weird. And I don't know what this means that it's only when everything's kind of in the middle, like no one was too good or too bad that the routine was really important. So like, that's how, how it played out. Everything was in the middle 
And I was like, okay, like it's not totally wide open. Like Tom and Timnick played really well. You and Will played really well. And importantly, you and Will really maximized the judging system. But like everyone was bad enough to put it harshly that like, I was like, okay, it's safe for me and Daniel to do the routine. <laughs> and like, it's not the end of the world that I only get to do like two doubles in our routine. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's really, yeah. by the way, like a lot of what it comes down to, like my routine with Daniel had like, I do think like two doubles built in. That's it. Like for me anyways, I think Daniel had one that he almost never went for, but he did go for it in the finals and he hit it more. Shout out to Daniel. Like I only had like two opportunities to do doubles. And again, doubles are important because it's a guaranteed score. Like Daniel mm-hmm. and I had tons of stuff that was really hard. Like the donkey kick is always like a little bit scary. It's a donkey kick straight into an L kick, straight into a catch. Like that's really his risky and hard. But like it wouldn't shock me if I got a 10 for that or a five for that. But I know if I hit a double, <laughs> I'm going to get an eight. Like eight is like the yep. minimum I'm going to get. But I'll probably also get like a nine or a 10 for hitting like a triple barrel or something. Yep. So like, I think now's a good time. Oh, now's no, a good no, time no. to talk about expected value of things. So like you're talking about doubles have a really high expected value because everyone knows what it is and you can catch it very consistently. So it's like, uh, like, or maybe I should explain what expected value is. It's like how much is something worth as a baseline times, like how often you can hit it and like the consistency. So like consistency means a few things. It's like, if you drop it, that's low consistency. But if the judge misses it, that's also low consistency. But doubles are high because they can recognize it and you catch them a lot and they have a high baseline. Yeah, the equation's like E equals PV. Expected value equals yeah. probability times value. So yeah, like so you, yeah. we did a doubles practice before Worlds. How many doubles did I hit in a row? 21, was it? No, I Then hit, you switched to triples, right? I hit 20 <laughs> straight doubles and then five straight triples. Okay. Like that's what I'm playing with in terms of expected value. I'm like, I'm going to hit this 95% of the time and get a nine or I can do a donkey kick and get a six. (laughs) And I don't think I can hit, I might be able to hit 25 donkey kicks, maybe, but I definitely can't hit 25 donkey kicks where then my partner does an L kick and then catches it like that. And so it's like, there's two problems. One, like non doubles have a much lower probability meaning they're like way riskier and they have a higher range of values. And I mean, on the right side of the equation. So like the donkey kick might get me a five. It might give me a 10. I don't know. So it might be, let's say it's like a 50% success rate to keep it simple. If it's a 50% success rate and I get a five, that's not worth a lot of points. Whereas my double, it's a 90% success rate and I get an eight. So like, that's the thing that's like fundamentally, and this is not, Again, this is judging system agnostic. Like it's not the new system that causes this problem. This is a judging psychology problem. Happened under the old system, happens under any system. Like no matter what, if you're asking people to judge difficulty, the way it's worked out for all of history is that people judge things a certain way. And like that was, that's the kind of analysis I was doing watching the routines of like, Dan and I have lots of things that in theory should have really high diff values, but might not. And they're risky. And so like, those are the kinds of things that we could cut out if we were, if our backs were against the wall, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. I was going to say this can be applied to like the routine in general. Like people should be like, what's the expected value of the routine as a whole. And so you're talking about if the round is really hot, 
you would bail on the routine because you need to increase the expected value. Like the expected value is the ceiling of your routine. Well, that's where I also think it's weird that like we talked about this before, it's hard to know what to do. If everyone plays really well, it's better to bail on your routine. If everyone plays really badly, it's better to bail on your routine. Like at least for me recently, the sweet spot of the routine is everyone plays middle, like middle of the road. I would never bail on a co-op routine that the expected value was so high. Co-op is a true co-op's a little bit of a different case though, I think because of the extra person, like unless you could jam effectively with two disc, like co-op, I see what you mean. Co-op is basically a two disc round now, which we should talk more about, which I've said before. I don't really love that, but like, that's just how it is. Um, okay. Anyways, let's come back to that. But point being the irony, by the way, is that I dropped both of my doubles and my routine (laughs) with Daniel, which is hilarious. I don't know what happened with that. I dropped a bunch of doubles, which is crazy. I just think I was tired. Oh man, it kills me. I cannot believe I dropped so many doubles. Um, like Dan and I played, I don't know exactly how it felt in the moment. Like, I think I felt like we were always just above the line. Like I never felt like, Oh no, like we might be losing now. I felt like kind of always like, all right, we're doing well enough. And we hit like the music, we hit like slightly safer versions of almost everything we planned. And I dropped my shoe doubles. That was a bummer. But like at the same time when the round ended and like kind of in the round, I was thinking like, now it might come down to how the judging system works or I should about judging psychology really. Like I, so far it's almost never come down to the actual mechanics of the judging system, which we can talk about, especially with co-op. But like, I was thinking like, I think we played well enough to win and should win probably. But like how many doubles did Ryan and will have like maybe enough (laughs) that like the math just doesn't work out for us. It's like, I was a little bit nervous, but you again, and this is all the way without you looking at it, just you were in the audience and I was like, was it enough? And you were like, I think so. And then we won pretty handily, which we should say for anyone looking at the scores and we didn't talk about this yet for every round, except women's, there was only six judges. Why? Cause there was no players there. Like <laughs> if anyone, we asked people, no one had a problem with it. Most people agreed it was the best way to go. But if you want to look at the list of people we were picking from to judge, and you think there was more than six judges, feel free to let us know. But it was really tough. And I'm not trying to insult anyone who we didn't pick to judge, but I mean, even the people we had judging, it was their first tournament judging. People who judged the finals had never judged another tournament because there was no one else to judge. Um, but I bring all this up to say that like the score differentials are different than you usually see under the new system because six judges means smaller absolute spreads. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like Dan and I won open pair semis by like 60 points and we only won by like 20 points. What was it again? 20. It was like 18. Okay. We won by like 18 points in the finals. Now that does reflect a lower margin of victory for sure, but it's not as low as it seems because there was less judges. Like an 18 point might be the equivalent of a 30 point win. Mm, Exactly. Um, Just to like throw that out there. And then, of course, like in the moment, it felt really good knowing like Dan and I had had this long history and we had like a really great hug. And I felt like really the one time I got a little bit emotional and I'm trying to get emotional now, like right before Dan and I played, like I listened to this song that I was listening to a lot before we won our first world title. And it was like a song I associated with my best friend who passed away. And like I did kind of like break down and like give Daniel a big hug. And like we shared a 
a special moment like before we went out there and i think that like carried over a little bit when we won and the fact that we like played to the same music we had played to in 2010 and 2011 like all that had like a lot of like good emotion to it and i think like the emo it's kind of weird it's like the opposite of co-op like the emotional side of it was like super strong and like i felt really good about it this isn't the opposite of co-op i should be careful but like but the like i think we were both like oh, i wish we'd gone like a little bigger and like a little harder and like mm-hmm. won it like more handily or something but like overall i think that was a super positive experience like really el exigente our semis round like that was the round that i think was super special because like that was our <laughs> first routine song with like at least in a tournament and people saw you get saw you dance i danced like that was cool <laughs> Um, but anyways, that was a great experience. I don't think Paris is that controversial. Uh, so y'all got second. I guess that makes sense. I told Will, and I think this is true. Like, I think if me and Daniel did literally everything y'all did and y'all did literally everything we did, like maybe the team sort of swapped, like there's always going to be a little (laughs) bit of that, but I don't think it was like a crazy controversy, right? Nope. No. And then the Colombians got third, which obviously was super exciting they had a crazy routine with like a thousand disc <laughs> in it for me personally. Like I probably, like I said, would have put like Tom and Timic there because I think they were cleaner. And like, here's again, we're like, I'm probably a little different than other people. Like I see that in my mind, like what the Columbians, this is a Charco and Chusas, right? Like, uh, Jonathan. Yeah. I think I, got their yeah nickname. I think I got okay, their nicknames, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Charco and Chusas who played in 2014 and were awesome then. Uh, so like their routine had tons of energy was super exciting, incredibly creative. Like all those things are really good. But like for me, I'm like, yeah, but I can tell you guys still lack a certain degree of like skill and poise that like comes through a lot. Like there's a little bit of like sloppiness to it and like chaos to it. That for me, like is why I would maybe put like a Tom and Timic ahead of them. But I also understand like what I just said is true. Like way more exciting than a lot of the other routines, way more creative than a lot of the other routines. And like the, complexity of the routine bears a lot of weight. It's like, maybe this could be a whole topic for another podcast, but like they introduce a kind of diff that I think I process differently than other people, which is like, they introduce a lot of diff in terms of disc slash team coordination. So like what makes the routine really hard is that they have so many different discs moving at the same time among all the players. So like that is difficult, but like, it's not exciting to me. It's like, then this is personal to me and I shouldn't say it's not exciting to me, but like I view it less effective than other people. Cause to me, I'm just like, yeah, like a traffic jam. This is a, such an unfair analogy. So sorry, but like <laughs> a traffic jam is way more complicated, but like, it's not like better. It's just like more stuff happening, but it's more stuff I don't necessarily like. So I think the reason I maybe am like more down on them than everyone else. And I feel comfortable saying this because everyone else disagrees with me. So like, if Charco and Chusas are listening, <laughs> like I'm the only one who feels this way. You guys rock. I think you're awesome players. But like I would dox me for them and why I probably would have had them fourth is that having lots of like under the leg passes and under the leg catches isn't like that much more exciting to me just because there's lots of it at the same time and coordinated. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Okay, I'll offer a short rebuttal. Please do. Okay, so when you're watching at a dance competition and there's like a group of three that go out and they do like a really hard thing, it can't compare to like a 60 person dance crew doing like easier moves all in sync. Just the visual impact of it 
And I think that's what their routine captures. That's fair. And there are lots of moments where that kind of effect does come through. But I think maybe like they're not quite at the right level for it to really work for me because I think like there is a certain sloppiness to it or like a certain asymmetry to it that like breaks the illusion, if that makes sense. I agree. There's like this threshold that it becomes amazing and they're approaching it. It's kind of like the first time we saw Chesco moves yeah. in the beginning, they were like, there is so much potential there and now it's fulfilled. Like there's yeah. a chance they... I mean, it's like we talk about with mirrored moves. Like most of the time, I think they look terrible because they're not really mirror images. <laughs> mirrored, yeah. Um, but if you crush it, it looks amazing. So like, I think that's a great way to put it in like a more optimistic spin on it so I don't sound so negative. Like I think they're on the cusp of like hitting freestyle Nirvana where all the pieces work together. <laughs> and it's like that, like they could be the team that hits the all time routine. That's like the standard. Here's what we all aspire to routine. But I still think they're not quite there yet. There's just a little too much chaos <laughs> to it, if that makes sense. Um, I should also say, which I should have said as a disclaimer to all of this, who cares what I think or who cares what you think in terms of like judging. It's like if I say like <laughs> I would have had this team, like I'm one person, it doesn't really matter. Um, and like some people came up to me afterwards and were like, how would you judge it? I basically told everyone who cares and like didn't say anything because like <laughs> what, like I was not one of the six judges. So it doesn't matter what I thought, like do with, do with yeah. that information. <laughs> but like this is a podcast. We're just talking about what we thought. So I'm not, nothing I say means I'm right or wrong about it. All right. So co-op last one, most controversial in a few ways, but like you dug into the numbers and have some information about it. So I actually thought co-op people were playing better than in other rounds, at least at the beginning. Like I watched the first few co-op teams, like Mike Galoop's team was awesome. And like mm -hmm. a few other teams, just like Shar's team, I think with Chesco and uh, maybe it was... I don't remember everyone's names, but like they were awesome. So I was actually like, oh, wow, like there could be a real dark horse team that wins this. Santiago. Yeah. Pio Drahita. Yeah. Yeah. He was awesome. He played really great the whole weekend. Mm -hmm. So like that was kind of crazy. And I think the biggest dark horse was Paul and again, Charco and Chusas because they also had a crazy chaotic routine. And the question was whether or not they'd be able to execute it. And kind of like always, it was just like in the middle. So like they had a lot of drops, but they executed a lot of really cool stuff. And what I didn't say about the pairs, but is true is like that style play is heavily rewarded in the new system in some ways. It's like you have a million phrases and like you might struggle a little bit with getting high highs. Like you're not going to have as many like crazy nines and tens, but I also think they probably got some nines and tens for a few of their coordinated efforts i could be wrong but like that's what i would guess based on like feedback and they should crush an ai crush in teamwork like there's lots of benefits to how they played but they dropped it enough that i felt like pretty good then daniel anka and tom played and they pretty much shredded so on the one hand i was like okay like it totally makes sense if they win on paper they are a better team than us so like it's actually crazy that we were ranked higher than them because will has like no ranking points but that's just because of me and you but like on paper let's be honest like if you're picking between me you and a players and playing two years and tom leitner considered one of the greatest players of all time daniel i think also considered one of the greatest players of all time and anka who i think is like already one of the greatest players of all time like they should be the favorites in a lot of ways except for one 
which is that they also had a like Tom Leitner old school routine, which is nothing wrong with that. But like that can by the numbers perform worse in a tournament. And so like when we were going out, I was like, okay, I'm a little nervous because they played really cleanly. They're really good. They might even have like better name recognition than we do. But like, I knew we had a routine that was like well designed for the judging system. And one note of data, this is not always the best exercise because different judging panels come out different ways. Like we didn't play very well in the semifinals of co-op and we scored like 180 points or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And Anka, Tom and Daniel played great and they got like 140 points or something. Does that also sound vaguely right? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it was, like someone can check my math. (laughs) I was just like, okay, this is kind of crazy. I thought they crushed and they only scored whatever they scored. And then we didn't play very well and we scored super, super high. And again, this is not all just about the judging system, but like judging psychology. Like our our routine was like tons of phrases, tons of short phrases, tons of short phrases with lots of depth. Like those are the things that are the most valuable under the new system. And I think their routine like starts out with three indies that take like 45 seconds. Now those Mm -hmm. indies were sick and they like crush the music and are amazing. But like, in the first 45 seconds, we're going to have like a hundred points and they're going to have like 40 points. So the, to me in my head, I was like, it all comes down to whether we like vaguely execute a routine. <laughs> like if we, if we, <laughs> we probably can drop it like five to 10 times and we should be fine, but who knows? And it also like, here's the real moment. Like will crushed in pairs. Is he going to be able to repeat that? And does he feel a different kind of pressure in co-op because like I assume he felt like his chances of winning in co-op were a lot higher than in pairs. I could be wrong about that. And so we play and this is again, where like, I'm a bad judge because I wasn't playing very well, but I think you and will were playing well. So in my head, I was like, okay, this isn't going that great. But I think probably in your head and will's head, you guys were like, okay, this is going great. And again, my bad perspective I thought you broke your shoulder in like the first 45 seconds. Like in my brain, (laughs) that's what happened. In reality, there's video. It was the last 45 seconds. So I guess we really were like 90 whatever percent through our routine. You went for a guidance that I set you. So blames on me. Although you told me it was a perfectly okay set. Yeah. And you landed and I could tell you landed badly and I had had a couple bad landings at Worlds this year too. And so and I think in my head, I was like thinking about what I had had happen, even though it was at the different gym. And I was like, okay, he's a little rattled, but he's probably fine. Like he's probably just got like a sore arm or like maybe he hit like his head a little bit. Cause that's what kept happening to me. I kept hitting my head a little bit. I was a little worried one day I got a like minor <laughs> concussion. And I think one player did get a concussion by the way. In any case, so like I was looking at you like, okay, he's going to get up now and he's going to throw it to me. And like, I don't even know, like, I can't even remember exactly. I need to look at the video again to see what happens. But like, you get up and it's very apparent that you're super injured. And I think like it all happens so fast. I'm still just like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, throw it to me. And you throw it and you watch, like you can see in the video, your arm just like dies and the disc <laughs> goes right on the ground. And it is enough that I can pick it up like while it's still spinning, but it has like no spin on it. And then I was like, okay, this is bad. And then I just turned to Will and I say, we're jamming now. 
and Will and I jammed the last like 40 seconds. At one point, I don't know why I didn't remember doing this until I watched the video. <laughs> I look at you again because <laughs> you have the second disc and I'm like, come on, come on, throw it to me. And I think what was happening was that I was expecting you to throw me counter at some point. And I was like, his left hand's fine. And <laughs> you do kind of like muster up a counter throw. But even that throw was pretty weak. And then you take a kneel. So again, more just like how I felt in the moment. I thought it was over. Like as soon as you went down, I was like, that's it. And it was funny because we had been like half joking, like it's fate that I'm going to win all three. Not because <laughs> we're big jerks, but because like all these weird things kept happening that were like, it's fate. Like it doesn't even make sense. Like I, this is kind of like classic fate, right? Where like something really bad happens and then something good happens. And people are like, it's a miracle. Like, like there's a God above who's helping us. I'm like, yeah, but like that really bad thing happens. Like every time, like every day something bad happened. Like one day I thought like maybe I broke my hand and I was like, oh no, like I'm not gonna be able to play. But then like it got better mostly. <laughs> so like I thought I maybe got a concussion, but like it was fine. So every time like I thought someone was about to derail it, like something else happened that fixed it. So that's why we were joking. Like it's fate. So when you went down, I was like, you know what? It wasn't fate. Like it's just like real life. Like, Things don't work out the way you expect them to. It makes sense. And I kind of gave up. And you can, if you watch the way I play, you might not like get this message, but like I'm kind of in desperation mode, but I'm also kind of like not trying that hard because for instance, the last catch, I go for a double spinning, double disc barrel guidus. I guarantee you if I thought we were going to win, I wouldn't <laughs> have done that. I would have just caught a regular double barrel guidus or whatever. Like the two handed disc one is not that consistent. And I was having trouble when I was warming it up today, that day. So I like wasn't going to do it. Not part of a routine either. So like, I was just like, let's have fun. Let's just jam. Let's call it out. But I think if I had known what you probably knew, like we were way ahead at that point and we were playing like with house money. Also in retrospect, which I didn't realize there's only like three co-ops after you go down. So it's mm -hmm. a very like a minimal amount of impact. If you think about the numbers. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the controversy. And again, like, who cares what you and I think doesn't matter. So like, this is my fault. In the moment I was like, Ryan got hurt again. I thought it happened like in the first second of the routine. So I thought we lost. And like, I think I went up to Daniel and I was like, I mean, Ryan broke his shoulder. Like, what, like it's, we're not going to win. And I think he was more nervous about it. And it turns out he was right to be. Um, I think you probably weren't that nervous either. Cause you had a much better sense than I did that we mm -hmm. were ahead um, they're like, here are little things I remember. I remember seeing BB and she was like, big smile, like game was just a great job. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, what are you talking about? You guys were great. So I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting. I also think not everyone realized you got hurt. I think. <laughs> okay. So like, I think for instance, like, I don't think Daniel realized you were hurt right away. Like I is like, I no, no, he's like actually hurt. Like, I think he broke something. It's not like, a minor injury because you did it what it was late enough in the routine that like it wouldn't have been crazy if you had taken a kneel and like will and i did three <laughs> pairs co-ops like maybe it would be like an homage to like me and will like learning together mm -hmm. or something um and then you showed me the results and i was like we need to call the judges back because like i'm not sure about this but we also didn't totally know what to do because like this happened in 2019 and no one was allowed to change the results. And there's not like really a rule that says you can change your results. But like we at least wanted to make sure there wasn't a mistake. Like 
if you look at your div sheet of the like five zeros that you didn't mean to put in there or like whatever. Um, also at the time, like I had just looked at the like sum scores. So I didn't really know <laughs> like what caused it or why or like what happened. Um, and so like the judges came back and they talked about it. Apparently they also talked about it for a while after the round. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And everyone was like, these are the results we were fine with. So like you've done a deeper dive into this than I have. So like, what do the results tell you? Okay. Let's just do a high level overview of what happened. So we won by a delta of 3.21 points, which is not a lot. Under the but new it's system, like, it's, it's like nothing. Yep. It's also at six judges. So that's actually like five points. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So there's like, we have four big categories, like diff, variety, AI, X, and general impression. And so first place won diff and X okay. in the summary totals. And then second place won variety, AI, and general impression. And what are the deltas in the categories? So it's large in diff, like eight points. Variety is pretty close. It's one and a half points. AI, the second place won by a lot, five points. In X, it's pretty close. It's a two points. So yeah, first place won by two points. And in general impression, it's basically the same. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting things about that. So one part of why we have general impression is it's kind of like our gut check of like, what did people actually think here? And to me, at least like scores are scary when there's a huge difference between general impression and everything else. Which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If everyone was like, oh, I thought this team was really good, but they lost by 100 points. Like, that's kind of alarming. So like, we were about the same. Who cares whether I agree with that or not? I have no idea. I'd have to watch it again. I didn't feel like that in the moment. But like, that's six judges who were basically just like, it's a toss-up. So mm -hmm. again, this goes to my theme of life and freestyle judging. Look at the raw scores. <laughs> like, we can't change mm -hmm. the raw scores. If people put in that score, like, that's what they put in. Diff... It's like some of this played out the way I thought it would and some didn't. So like, I'll just give my opinions and people can do with them what they want. I am on the one hand, a little surprised we did so much better in diff, but I think that comes down to phrases. Like they just had lots of, um, they had like a lot of longer phrases and a lot of indies and we had like in one disc and we had two discs and like a million phrases. But like when I actually think about it from the numbers, like if a judging system abuse it makes sense that we won diff because I dropped two doubles, but I hit two triples and four doubles. You hit mm -hmm. a couple doubles and like Will hit like a few singles. So like just on that alone, like two triples and four doubles, that's six of your, was it 14 or 16 phrases? Yep. So like just from me alone on doubles alone and triples alone, like six of our, like 40% of our score is going to be above an eight and a half or a nine. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep add you hitting like two or three doubles now we're up to like 10 that are going to be eight and a halfs or nines so if you and you told me that they only had one double in their routine and they dropped it or something exactly so they had one double and dropped it so again like i'm not saying this is how it should be but that's just like judging psychology like if one team it's kind of like three points in the nba if like one team shoots twice as many three pointers that's almost impossible for them to lose if one team has <laughs> 10 doubles and triples for that matter, and the other team doesn't, like, you're out of luck. Also, by the way, I, I didn't check. But, like, I'm curious if I even got credit for the triples because we were doing them at the same time. 
And I'm not sure if the judges even knew that I did two triples. You did get credit. Okay. You did got you got diff credit for it. Okay. Fine. Ver- variety. I'm actually surprised they beat us in variety just because we had two discs. And therefore, like just by numbers, like a far greater ability to get lots of variety points. So like I imagine we got hurt a little bit in quality. Did we win quantity? I'd be curious. Let me check. Okay, so in quantity, we had like 52 versus second place, which was like 58. Which, by the way, is too low for any team. Like when I judge variety, I feel like I've got like 80, but whatever. That's another issue. Um, So like that to me is surprising. Like I would, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I don't know. I'd be curious, but it's purely based on my feeling about like tempo and like disc number. Like if you have two discs, with lots of short phrases, I would think just by time with multiple discs, you'd have more variety. But like, obviously, that's not how the judges saw it. So like, that's fine. Um, but it's just interesting. AI. So this makes perfect sense to me. This is the category where it's easiest to punish us because you got hurt. And I did talk with at least one judge who told me I punished you because you got hurt. And I said, that's fine. Like, and I think I told Daniel before I knew the scores is like, I think the judges will punish us like that. Mm-hmm. And like punish is a harsh word. I don't, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but like it, like imagine a more extreme example. Let's say in open pairs, me and Daniel are competing against you and Will. Or let's make it easier. Me and Daniel are competing against you and Anka. You and Anka have a pretty good round, five, six drops and hit a bunch of diff. Daniel in the first five seconds breaks his leg out. And I play the rest of the routine solo. And I hit seven triples. I hit like a grown man cry right side up, a grown man cry upside down. Like I literally just have the spirit inside of me and I destroy. Should I win? I don't know. Like by the numbers, by the judging system, I would win. I would have so much. You could give me a zero in teamwork, but like I could Mm -hmm. crush every other category. I could crush X. I could crush variety. I could crush difficulty. I could even crush music. Like there's lots of things you could dominate and win. But I think my instinct is that it would feel so gross and like the emotional tenor of like one player on the field, like writhing in pain (laughs) would be such that like the judges would just be like, no, and they would give you lower (laughs) scores. And I do think that did happen. Like I think we probably got lower scores across the board and I'm kind of saying correctly because you got hurt. The problem is what makes this real life example more complicated is that you got hurt really late in the routine. And so it's like harder to know how to assess that. Um, But anyways, it makes sense to me that we got docked in AI. So like we lost a lot of teamwork points, which is also interesting, by the way, because like that would be a category that normally we would have done really well in because we had two discs in like a very choreographed Mm -hmm. routine. Whereas again, like, the Daniel Anka Tom routine, which again, I think was incredible, was still like very like indie focused and like very like long phrases, which like cuts down a lot on your teamwork, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so like I think like we lost a lot of points there. And that and I'm fine with that. What other execution? I'm like a little surprised we won. It sounds like maybe it's because we had like twice as many phrases. I'm gonna talk about the numbers. Okay. Once we get into me. the math, we'll talk about it. Okay, well, okay well, so let's we'll wait for the math in because yeah. we did diff. We did AI, we did variety, we did X. And then general, you said it's the same. I mean, there's nothing I can say about that. That's just how mm-hmm. the judges did it. So like, tell me more about the numbers. 
Okay, so what I did was I tr- tried to figure out what our scores were at the point where I stopped playing. So like right after I caught the Guidus, yeah. I was like calculate what the scores are for each team. And unfortunately, it's like impossible to figure out like AI yeah. and general impression. And like variety, I don't have the tools to do it. So but for diff and X, we can reliably like calculate yeah. the running totals. And so at it was three minutes when I like hurt myself on the guidance. Yeah. Second place had 20 Not phrases. three minutes. You mean two minutes? Oh, it's co-op. No, Sorry. Routine. Sorry. Yeah. You're right. Three minutes. Yeah. So at three minutes, second place had 20 phrases and first place had 25 phrases. So just right there, it's like a big difference, yeah. like 25% more content. Yeah. And then I put in all the diff numbers and at three minutes, first place was 6.7 points ahead, which is a lot considering the delta between the teams at the end was 3.21. So it was like double the, like we were like first place gave away half their advantage kind of just yeah. in diff. So like the, that, the main point of this the, is that you getting hurt had a very strong negative effect on how it yeah. played out. And so like, I thought this was a lose-lose situation for everyone involved. So like, first of all, just period. I thought like, if I win, it's going to be a lose-lose because like you got hurt and it's just going to be like, like I just felt like it would be a controversy if that happened. I didn't want to be beating like Daniel again and Anka again after having like really close battles with him lately. And then if I lose, I lose. So like, that's not that great either. Especially because like a big part of why we would lose is because you broke your shoulder. I also think, and I don't want to speak for them. I have no idea what their views are. I think for them, it would be a lose-lose. Like if you win, your only real competition broke a bone in the middle of their round. And like that probably doesn't feel that great either. So like one thing I think everyone should keep in mind when we have these like controversial situations, it's like, it's pretty rare to have a controversial situation where someone feels good about it. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) nobody is a victor when it really happens. Um, so, but like the one thing that I don't know if this should make us feel better about it, but like this was a controversy because you broke a bone in a round. Like that's really what it comes from. It's not like because anyone was being vindictive. It's not because like, some crazy judging malfunction. It's like something really unfortunate, unlucky happened. And we had to figure out like every judge had to decide what to do in real time about like what that meant. And like, you could argue there should be something in the manual about what to do about that. But I don't think there's an obvious solution, even in retrospect, because like I said, I think it's one thing if your partner breaks their leg in the first five seconds, what happens if it's the last five seconds? Like there's lots of permutations of this that I don't know what you do. I mean, (laughs) so look, I think there was some controversy and some people that were upset about it. But as far as I can tell, like last year, I was getting a lot of stuff about the controversy and it wasn't a controversy that even involved me, but like I heard a lot about it this year. I'm not hearing that much. I don't know if you've heard a lot. So like, hopefully it's not putting quite as bad a taste in people's mouth as before which again i know it's easy for me to say but like i'm just trying to be like honest about it like like i said i think it's a lose-lose like you got hurt it's just awkward like i don't know what to do about it (laughs) yeah 
Okay, I can cover the last X part because this is not really, this is just interesting from a judging math standpoint. Doesn't yeah. even have to do with the teams. So I like calculated the X up to the three minute mark. And if you look at just raw X scores, so yeah, look at raw X scores. First place is two whole points behind in X. Yeah. But if you apply the multiplier, we our first place is two points ahead of second place. So it's a four point swing from the multiplier. And I know in the judging education, you're like, this is the most important part for competitors, the yeah. X multiplier. And that just like so accurately demonstrates how important it is. Yeah. And the irony is I don't really like it. Like I've been the whole weekend, I was hypothesizing better ways to do it. Like maybe it's a diff based X multiplier, not a phrase based X multiplier. Um, but here again is where I'm kind of like, look, I don't love it, but we're all playing by the same rules. So everybody knows that this is how it works. And it's not that hard to take advantage of. All you needed was a 20 second quick catch section to get yourself up mm-hmm. to the maximum number of phrases. Like here's actually the thing that gives me some hope. Look, I'm against it. Like I'm ready to change the catch multiplier, how it works now. But the one thing I will say in its favor is that it's not that hard to get to 25 or I don't know what it is for co-op 30, whatever it is. It's not that hard mm-hmm. to get there. Um, so like every team should just do it basically. Like <laughs> it's, it's not like it takes 50 phrases to get there. You don't have to like make a huge overhaul to your routine to do it. But I think maybe like part of why, and I haven't heard like nearly as much craziness as I've heard in the past. I think this is like the first time I really think teams decisions with respect to the judging system mattered. Maybe first time's not the right way, but like on such a high level and like in such a big way. So again, here's where I may differ. Like I'm not blaming the judging system for like how it came up with the scores, but I do think people's response to the judging system really mattered here. Like I think Mm -hmm. if I had been coaching the second place team, Anka, Daniel, Tom, I could have told them like three things to change. That would have been really easy. That would have made them clear winners. Like it would have been super mm-hmm. simple. I'd just been like those three indies at the beginning, I'm going to make them six indies or like <laughs> yeah. I'll put like one pass and then like there would be like so many like little things you could do to fix it. But like again, like one thing that kind of like balances it out for me, this isn't like fair or anything, but like you got hurt. Like it sounds like we would have had a pretty good chance if you hadn't gotten hurt. It's mm-hmm. just the fact that you got hurt that really made it happen. So I don't know, like, I don't really want to win like this, but I also don't really want to win if my big, like, I don't love that Anka lost her nail in open pairs. I think that's like kind of annoying to win, but at least there it's like, yeah, I mean, that can happen to anybody. Like it's like part of the competition, I guess, like <laughs> making sure your nails are going to work. Although there's always some randomness to it, but like if you get hurt, that's just like another level. Yeah. I don't know. But I, again, I feel bad most, most of all, because I want will to have like a really positive experience from it and i don't want it to be like this weird thing happened um but i think he has a great attitude about it i don't think he's let our like negativity get him down um but it's it's also like a bummer way to end my competitive career right like even no matter what happened like even if we easily won just like watching you break your shoulder is not the best way to have my last (laughs) round like we weren't 
like Jen and I had that really special hug at the end. Like you and I had no special hug. It was like, no. do we need to take you to the hospital right now? Like that was the number one problem. So I don't know. I, I hope I didn't like fan any flames here. And I also hope that if anything, I'm being like more negative towards us and like, but I don't know if I am. I don't, I have no idea. I don't really have my finger on the pulse of what people thought about this. Do you? No, no. Yeah. It's like, a, it was hard. Cause once it was done, we all just like packed up and left because like I couldn't play. And yeah. Yeah. This is where it's just like, if people knew how little I cared about another world title, like I wish I could just convince people like it's not worth it for me to do this. Like, do you think I like this? I don't at all. I didn't want to compete this year. I told anyone who would listen with like the Daniels and Ilkas of the world talked me into playing. And if this is what I get out of it, it's not good. So I'm so glad I'm not going to have to deal with this again. And, or at the very least, like I don't mind dealing with it when I can be neutral because I'm not involved in any way. So like I could take a much stronger stance if my name wasn't in the hat here. Right. And I could just be like, Mm -hmm. here's how it happened. Like, here's why it does or doesn't make sense. And like, that's what I think, you know, the agree or not, but like, you know, like you can trust what I'm saying because I have nothing to do with it. But like, what's really hard is that I do have something to do with it. And like, it does ostensibly have stakes. Like this is where I'm, I'm thinking about that time Claudio like threw out, I'll just give the whole story. I don't care. I'm retired. Come at me. <laughs> I wasn't involved in this. I don't really know all the details of it. But in 2010, Claudia was competitive director. Somebody like reported Joey Hadoklin's judging sheet to him. And like he threw it out. And I'm and like judges, Joey's scores didn't count. Not surprising to me, based on all of our experience, turns out Joey's score didn't really matter to the outcome of the tournament. <laughs> like they threw it out and only one team swatched plays swapped places the fifth place team and the fourth place team swapped and claudio ended up getting fourth instead of fifth and at least some people were like oh my god like claudio threw out joey hadaklin's judging sheet and like he moved from fifth to fourth now again i don't know all the details of what happened i am pretty confident saying that claudio followed whatever procedure was in place at the time when there's a complaint about a judging sheet i have no idea what was on the judging sheet i was it was my first worlds. I was 18 years old. I, so like, I'm not talking about the merits of whether Joey's judging sheet should have been thrown out. I have no idea, no idea, but like Claudio had like the best response ever. And I'm sure some people doubted him, but I have no doubt. He was just like, if you think I care about getting fourth place over fifth place, you're insane. I don't know. Those weren't his exact <laughs> words, but like, that's how I feel about all this. I'm like, if you think I care at this point, about my 12th world title at a tournament with like six people at it, you were wrong. Or at the very least, like I could not possibly care about this more than I care about like the relationships that impacts in my life. I care so much more about those than like whether I should get docked more in variety or whatever. So I'm happy that I get to go to a part of my life where I'm no longer competing. My name is not on the hat. And like come at me like you can have all my world titles i don't need them so i'm ready to move on cool anything else we did like three full hours (laughs) i didn't really mean to do this but i think we at least now we don't need to do a routine rewatch i think i think we like explained enough i think so too yeah okay cool 
sorry if it was a little negative, but now I'm not competing. So we can talk more and more about the things that I am excited about, which is spreading the jam and becoming a better freestyler. So we'll talk more about that in the future. I'm sure there'll be some more worlds follow up, but you know, we'll deal with it as it comes. And uh, cool. So check us out at clockercounter.com. Thanks to everyone for hosting a great tournament. Thanks to everyone who came. I'm starting right now. Poland. Get it on the calendar. Book your flights. Get your Airbnb. I will reach out to you. You will hear from me. I will make sure that you go to Poland Worlds. Please do it. We need all the support we can get. And uh, with that, we'll talk to you next time.